Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside, oh yeah. Welcome to part three of the Once We Dream Get Back series, Deep Dive, which we have made into a trilogy inspired by Peter Jackson himself, of course. So this deep dive has been an exploration of some of the important moments in this film, of what story Peter Jackson is telling, how this challenges our view of the time, and what exactly is going on. We've talked about how this film absolutely brings to life the love, affection, and bond that exists between the Beatles, still, as well as how invested they still are at this time. We've discussed Lennon and how his engagement and love for Paul and the Beatles is still in full evidence, which contradicts some of the dominant narrative, while also speculating that other things are going on under the surface. We chatted about the Lennon-McCartney creative marriage and the incredible chemistry, fertility, and energy that is still obviously there, and uh, yet there seems to be an issue between them. We talked about George's growing confidence and his frustration with his role within the Beatles, as well as his commitment to the Beatles. We talked about the leadership and the, the delicate balance and dance between Lennon and McCartney for leadership of the band. We hypothesized about some themes in the songs that suggest a musical conversation. And we concluded that the film demonstrates that the issue is not a lack of creative fertility. So we've talked about a lot, and yet there is still so much more to talk about. So I guess without further ado, let's uh, let's jump right back in. This is part three. Everybody let the hair down. Everybody pull the socks up. Everybody put the food down. Everybody had a 
Okay, there are a few specific scenes that I'd love to address. The first one is the scene after George leaves. I think it's the next day when they're all sitting in a circle. Uh, let's call it the Peter Sellers um, meeting when they're all kind of in a semicircle in a chat. And John and Yoko have just done an interview with CBS earlier in the day, and uh, they've just joined Ringo Mal, Paul, George Martin, Peter Sellers. So do you want to talk about that? Yes, it's a very strange and intriguing scene. Absolutely. <laughs> it is. But anyways, um, but we talked about the fact that he's trying to communicate potentially through songs and Paul is cutting him off. And to me, they kind of look like a couple fighting where mm. John is trying to sort of apologize, you know, ask me why I'll say I love you. And Paul's like, we need a schedule, <laughs> you know? And I, I don't know if Paul is cutting him off because he's worried John's being indiscreet. Well, part, I do think he's doing that. But I also get the sense that Paul's getting irritable. Just don't leave yeah. the needles this. lying around, you know. We've got a bad reputation now with John getting busted. Or any and problems, right? <laughs> you really not feel well. No, I just feel that. I don't feel well, but I can't say because I'm the captain of the ship. Nowadays, the captain gets off first. No, I put out the ship. If we hang around a bit longer, we'll get Ringo being sick. <laughs> See, missed me this morning. I did it for CBS. Just left off in the middle of the interview. Actually, I'm just recovering from the day, you know. From the night? No reason at all, except for I'm mistreating my body. Yes, I just yeah. uh, was up late, you know. I was yeah. sort of stoned and high and watching films, and I wouldn't have made it anyway. Is there any need to do this in public, Mr. Lemon? At the moment, you're a guest for lunch. Yeah, but it's not good if I'm going to come at 10, I should come at 10, you know. Up with the dawn, down with the sun. Mm. Ringo ever, Eric never. <laughs> As in, like, I kind of wonder if he, Paul's also used to John being a shit sometimes and then coming in and, you know, being like, oh, I'm so sorry. Because John was like, I should be coming in on time and ask me yeah. why and I love you and... Paul, I but, think Paul's, he's kind of, even though he laughs very much at John, you know, like he's also kind of red and probably kind of drunk in this scene. The laugh to me is very intriguing. And I, every, like the thing I've settled on with Paul's laughing is that he genuinely finds John hilarious yes. despite himself. I, that I, that's what I was going to say too. Yeah. I think that he can't help. Exactly. By, but laugh at John, even though he's annoyed with John. And, you know, this is where Yoko and John have just said that shooting up is fun, is exercise. And, and Paul references the cameras. And it's interesting because one of the things that Jack, Jackson cut, or there was another conversation where John is quizzing Paul about, do you remember this? Did you ever hear this audio where John is quizzing Paul about his likes and dislikes? And I think that's probably a mode that John employs sometimes, like goes into interviewer mode when he's curious about something. And he's asking Paul about like, does the Maharishi turn you on? And right. does pot and that kind of thing. And it was just it's probably the most couple-like they are in that. The thing that's couple-like, it's like they know each other so well. Yes. That, you know, for some reason, Paul is really irritated by what John's doing. Like to anyone else, John John's comments are just like a bit weird, a bit funny. Yes. John being John, just yeah. kind of goofing around and, you know. But to Paul, there's something annoying about it. 
you know, and that that's that's uh, uh, you know could be a combination of because he knows what's underneath it, or yeah. that, you know, but also just because he's so close to John that. He knows John's stick, you know, like there's something very knowing about their dynamic yes. there and there's something that we're not privy to, um, clearly. Yes, I'll do that. Yeah. When I was younger, much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now my life has changed in oh so many ways. What Papaluma, the Lim Bamboo. We can't carry on like this indefinitely. We seem to be. We seem to, but we can't. See, what you need is a serious program of work. Not an aimless rambling amongst the canyons of your mind. An aim at my trip upon that golden ship of shores. We all together, boy. To wander aimlessly is very unswinging. I'm hip. Well, when I touch you, I feel happy inside. I can't hide, I can't hide. Mm-hmm. Ask me why, what I'll say I love you. What you need is a schedule. Achieve something every day. Oh. You're so hard to live up to, Bob. <laughs> How many numbers will you be doing? Well, I'm planning on 11. It's 12 to 14, Mel. <clears throat> it's a choice of six. Some ready to wear and some made to measure. <clears throat> Bring it and put in a long drum break. Mm-hmm. 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 We were talking earlier. About the space between us? <laughs> about the gap between us. But about also like the documentary which is grinding to a halt. How we do it? Grinding to a halt? I think it's taking off. <laughs> Here we go. Loop-de-loop. As Frank Lee once said. You know, I wonder also if part of it is Paul trying to be on task and John trying to cut through that because there's something. Yes. That's an interesting point. Else that needs to be addressed between them. I think right? that's a great point. Yeah. I, that, I get, and that would sort of, you know, the schedule thing and we, we need a schedule. Like it's always Paul coming back to like the work task, and, the task yes. and we have to like, now is not the time, John. We need to talk about the the work, you know, the the job at hand. Yes. I, I think that John is kind of like, yeah, we need to work, but the problem is is that we've got some personal issues we need to talk about. And fair enough, Paul is kind of like, well, can we not talk about them when we've got 20 people around us and a camera and rolling? Cameras. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, but I think you're right that John is – edging into like maybe and this is maybe the best that john can do with paul is like paul's gonna avoid these conversations like the plague you know so john is kind of like well we're seated now so uh let's talk about it you know cameras or not you know (laughs) yeah Yeah, and i have no inhibitions right now so i'm gonna bring it up but also paul could be irritable because john has just talked about doing heroin you know, Paul was asked later in life what he felt like, you know, what he thought about John doing heroin. And he he was like, I just felt sad. And so he could be not sad at this point, like irritated. Like, what the fuck are you doing, John? Yeah. You know, you're like a god. You're yeah. my favorite person to work with. Why are you screwing yourself up? 
And especially when Paul is clearly making an effort at this point. Yes. To be cool with Yoko. Yep. And to and to, you know, yep. be do the right thing and be a good friend, I guess, yep. in his own way. Yeah. Um and there's lots of there's actually lots of evidence of Paul, you know, either consciously or not, just like being sort of like siding with Yoko. Like I, I don't know if you've heard that conversation. It's, it's not in the film, but it's like, you know, where they're talking about the show. Um, it's early yes, on. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I remember that. Yoko's really vocal about like what it should be. Like, yeah, like what, a, who the audience. With, with nobody with in no there. no audience. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. And Paul's always like, yeah, Yoko's right, Yoko's right. You know, and like – I mean, I'm not saying that that's not genuine. I'm sure it's completely genuine. Well, partly, um, he's playing to her for but sure. Yeah, you, you definitely get the sense that there that Paul is making a concerted effort in this period to, yeah. and he says it himself in the other conversation that we've yeah. talked about. You know, so he he. So I think that would make the heroin thing even more frustrating and sad and annoying for Paul because it's like. Uh, I'm like trying to get on board with you guys, but you're fucking doing heroin. Like, yeah, come on, you know. Yeah, but- yeah, yeah. Seriously, no, that's a great point. And John's doing heroin with Yoko, which is just something like Paul's cut out of that situation. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's just like he's not going to go there, and that kind of. I don't think he's like you said. I don't think he's trying to compete with Yoko at this point. Like he's trying to find a happy medium where she can be involved because John wants that but he still wants to have his creative partnership with John and this is kind of fucking that up you know I think the barrier point is is a big deal because this is something that like really separates Lennon and McCartney and it's something that Ono and Lennon share you know it's just very it'd be very hard exactly exactly yeah you know, I was thinking about um, um, Michael Lindsay Hogg in that circle. It was interesting because he was talking about himself. <laughs> he's so delusional in a way. Like, you know, he's talking about the fact that he's the captain of the, the ship, which I enjoy. I know you find him annoying. I enjoy Michael Lindsay Hogg because he kind of knows he isn't. He kind of knows that he's ridiculous. Yeah, he's, he's kind of self-deprecating in, yes. in a way. And, and, yes. and he is. Like, I, I, I'll, I'll hand that to him. And I, I must admit... I have found him more endearing yes. the more I've watched him. Yes, exactly. But he's such, he's just, yeah, I mean, <laughs> sometimes he's so lame and so but the, uh, but the, cringy, the, the, you know. He is cringy, but on the other hand, they so don't pay attention to him, you know, other than no, the fact that I think, I think that he does infuse them with a level of stress because he's always like, he's always talking about, you owe this to the yeah. world, you know, and poor George <laughs> is like, I don't even want to perform for anyone. But, you know, like the day before when he had talked about the fact that he had thought about <laughs> leaving the group, but nobody would notice. That, yeah. I thought that was pretty funny, actually. Yeah, that was cute. Like he does have good moments like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he yeah. and Paul have that funny little, like, he was like, I have to tell you you're wrong when I think you're wrong. Yeah. And Paul's like, yeah. and, and that was a good little interaction where he's like, yes. well, I'll just keep yes. saying. You know what I mean? Like, there was no animosity. But no. Well, fiction. <laughs> you see, Paul, I say to Linda when you're out that I can do it any way, except I got to keep saying you're wrong when I think you're wrong. Yeah, sure. Great. Uh, I'll just keep saying I'm right when I think yeah, I'm right. Yeah, of course. Because otherwise, I abdicate both my fanship and also my 
Uh, oh, no, another strike. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know. I'm off the show if you don't do it my way. I'm not moving that no, I, th I thought the other day I might leave, but then I thought they won't notice. <laughs> I actually really enjoy the Paul-Michael Lindsay hog dynamic because Paul's just like, Paul just doesn't really give a shit, but he's also <laughs> quite respectful as Paul d is, you know, like he's sort of, you know, he's a personable guy. Um, but he still has his sort of his little swagger and his little arrogance and, and um, you know, is quite happy to assert his his authority over yes. the situation. Yes, good. but, but like you get a sense that Michael Lindsay Hogg and Paul do have some shared vision. Like he tells Paul about the roof because yes. he gets, they both want to pay off. And he was like, Paul, I've got something for you. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's natural because I think he's, he just recognizes that Paul is the leader, really, that that's what it is. And, and you know, as much as they do have that banter at times um, where they're sort of, you know, whatever, like um, adversaries in a way. Yeah. Um, I also think that there are other times when Paul does actually earnestly address him and, and, yeah. and, and, and treat him, you know, as a sort of a creative uh, presence, you know. Um, yeah. And they, they do actually work in some ways quite well together. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Like like you said, I mean, I found it irritating yeah. the first time, but the second and third time, you see how much he's kind of looking at them. He's smiling. He's self-deprecating. He's a little dorky, yeah. you know, but but he's doing his best. He's surrounded by the Beatles who he loves, yeah, yeah, you know, sure. you know, <laughs> and he's kind of, he's just That's tone deaf. Question. He can't help himself, yeah, you know. He's just a bit but of anyways, a goofball. You know, he, like he is that. a bit of a goofball and he's kind of like hanging out with the coolest guys in the world. Like you're going to yeah. feel like a nerd, you know, you're going to feel yeah. like a goof. But the, the interesting thing is it's not like he's shy, you know, despite no, feeling probably no. like a goofball. Yeah. But when he says that he, you know, was not thinking about leaving, but they wouldn't notice. Then Paul's like, oh God, not another one on strike. And you can, yeah, yeah. and then even when John calls in, it's kind of a negotiation tactic, you know, yes. like, Oh, you want me to come in? Okay, yeah. I'll, okay, right. I'll be, I'll be but there, you know, at some point, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Oh, fancy me chances with you. I fancy me chances with you. Fancy me chances with fancy me chances. Oh, fancy me chances with you. Fancy me chances of the lock. Fancy me chances with your frock. Fancy me chances. Fancy me chances. Fancy me chances with you. Oh, fancy me chances with you. Fancy me chances with you. Another scene I'd love to chat about is the scene where George and John propose a larger Beatles, you know, expanding the, the group of the Beatles, right. that, you know, and they joke that it was three, then four, then five. When is that? Is that towards the yep. end or is that still at Twickenham? Uh, yeah, no, that is... That is at Savile Row. Yeah, it's Once, in part three. It's, I think it's in part two, but it could be part three when they're talking about Billy being great. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting scene, actually. To me, they all seem very close. Like, it struck me when watching it how invested totally. and how much they all own the group, you know? Because even though they're talking about expanding the group, yep. you see 
how tied to the Beatles, how invested all three of them are. You know, they're talking about this and they're laughing about this. They're all making joint decisions. And I got that a little bit too, like just a sense of how much they share their lives when they were talking to George Martin and they were kind of sad about Apple and the fact that Apple wasn't doing well. You know, it's reflective of how much they're in it together. Yeah. And John and, and George all of a sudden light up to the idea of increasing the number of people within the band. And it's an interesting conversation because, you know, John and George are kind of energized by this idea. And you can see that Paul, you know, Paul's always, he's, he's thinking, I think, a few steps ahead. And he kind of kiboshes the situation is just like, no. And what's interesting is that they all kind of laugh. Like they all kind of know that, yeah, that probably won't work. Like I didn't feel like there was a real tension there when they're like, oh, damn, Paul won't let us have these other people. You know, it was Mm. kind of like, yeah, you're probably right. And then they laugh. Because he says, um, does he say it's hard enough getting the four of us together, right? Yes. Which I I always find that a a sort of surprising, um, well, not surprising, but just an interesting reason for him to reject the idea and I always wonder whether that's really the reason or whether that's sort of the front for what the real reason is which is that he's he's concerned about preserving the magic that is the four of them yes which I agree with him or uh, you know if that is his reasoning I I agree with it yeah Um, but I, I yeah I wonder you know how sometimes you just sort of use a practical or logistical yeah, 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 yeah. or something just because it's easier to, you know. Well, um, I don't think he says, I don't think he says it's about us four getting together. It's, it was hard enough for us to agree, to be on the same page, to agree. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked about Paul talking about obstacles and, and he's right yeah. that getting them all on the same page, you know, getting it to a situation where George feels comfortable and John feels comfortable and he's got Yoko and Ringo and Paul, like that was difficult enough. So Paul's like, please no, no more people I need to take into consideration. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But and, and I think you're it's true. I think it's not, yeah, it's not practical. Logistical is not what it is. It's more just, um, yeah, as you say, getting four people onto the same page. And I think it's a reflection of how things are going at that moment yeah. that, that he that he makes that comment. Yeah, four strong personalities. And John refers to this, you know, like Paul's like, I don't want to produce, like in a different conversation, Paul goes, you know, I, I don't want to have to produce this. Like I can't do this film where yeah. I'm telling you guys what to do. And John acknowledges that, yes, we won't allow that. They've all got pretty strong personalities. And as much as 
the dynamic is such where it's Lennon and McCartney or the lead. George does have a strong personality, but you know, like for example, even when the the Beatles biography was being written, George downplayed his role and how good his writing was at that time. But at this point, yes, he's, he's kind of owning what he's bringing to the table. Um, But like personally, when I hear that conversation, I think that there's so many things going on. And I've heard a lot of people saying like, well, it's unfortunate that Paul held on to that version of the Beatles for so long. Um, And I think in some ways, Paul saying like, no, this is the Beatles the way it is right now kind of was an issue. Um, But I think that he is also maintaining the magic of it. And I feel like Paul is always thinking ahead because in some ways, you know, George throws out Dylan. Well, his buddy Dylan could come in. And John is thinking, well, maybe we could get Yoko in. I also think that John, as much as he does want to connect, reconnect and heal the wound with Paul, I think John's always split between wanting to do that. And I do think there's an underlying anger with John that's a little bit like, and I'm going to throw this in your face, Paul, you know, that I'm going to have my person here. I think that there is part of John that wants to taunt Paul or hurt Paul because it's a bit of a betrayal of their partnership if Yoko comes in. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and I think that's part of John's insecurity and it's a defense mechanism in, in, in a way that allows him to assert himself in the face of sort of what he probably sees as his slipping grip on the leadership or not the leadership, but the just, you know, Paul's just um, unstoppable force, you know, that is Paul, musical force, creative force, um, I think is a threat to John, even though they, I, I still think there's a, a, a real dynamic between them that is very um, productive and healthy. Uh, I think it's also a problem for John, as we see in the lunchroom conversation and as we see with, you know, um, other comments that he makes. As well, like from Paul's point of view, with that whole idea of expanding the group, I think also that Paul is the person in the group who is most, not concerned, but most um, sensitive to... Um, the Beatles' legacy and brand, and um, yep. and and just uh, not not just not not just from like a PR perspective, but also just from a purity perspective in terms of like the artistry yep. and the standards that yep. the Beatles have upheld for their entire career. I think he's the most. Um, protective of that um yep. and and john and george are a bit more impulsive in a way in, yes in in yeah let's do this, let's get this person in or they're a bit more they sway in the breeze a bit more in terms of yep. who they might be turned on by at that moment and what they're excited by that you know we know john obviously was extremely impulsive always um yeah i think paul is very level-headed He's always thinking things through. He's thinking about the future. He's thinking about the consequences and the domino effects of what yeah. of everything. 
And I just think that when he yeah. hears that idea of expanding the group, it doesn't matter who it is, whether, you know, to, like it's not a um, poor reflection on what he thinks of Dylan or Yoko or any or no, right. or Billy Preston or anyone. I think it's more just like, well, guys, let's just be a bit careful here. We're the Beatles. Yeah. And it's not just a fucking free-for-all. Like, yeah, the it's Beatles, insane. You know, yes. and, and we are the greatest band in the world and let's not, uh, do anything rash that's that could potentially damage our perfect record, you know, like our well, and our and our chemistry and our chemistry. Yeah. I think that, yeah. like you said, I think he's the most protective of the brand in terms of their chemistry and understanding what everybody's bringing to the table. And yeah. because, like, when I look at it from George and John's perspective, they're both wanting to bring in people that give them strength and power. Like if George brings in Dylan, who he's closest to, that gives him strength. You know, then all of a sudden Lennon McCartney is the songwriting partnership. Can't be that dominant. John brings in Yoko. Well, he's kind of unsettling the Lennon McCartney dynamic and he's got his 24-7 advocate there. But here's the thing is that you understand how powerful Paul is in this dynamic when you realize like if Paul agreed and he was like, okay, I'm for that. You know what? I'm going to bring in Donovan, who I just yeah. wrote with, and I'm going to bring in Jimi Hendrix, who I think is the best guitarist, and I'm going to bring in Linda. John and George's heads would explode. So it it's kind of like... It's okay as long as Paul doesn't bring in his little army of people, but if he brings in his posse, yeah, but also, it would not work in a second. Yeah, uh, like I think it's also sort of on the flip side. It's Paul didn't n- doesn't need his own advocate or his own. Um, That's what partner. I mean. That shows so, the power uh, dynamics. Yeah. yeah. So, he, so it's like the, but also you know. Um, you know, if you wanted to be cynical or if you thought that Paul was, you know, an egomaniac or whatever, um, you could sort of argue that Paul already is the dominant force in the band yeah. and anything... He, like, he likes it that way, yeah. He likes it that way and anything yeah. that unsettles the dynamics or the balance in the group is going to threaten Paul's... Um, position in the band now I, I think that is true and I don't think it's um a, I don't think it's a power thing for Paul it's just that musically he's in control and he likes it that way because that's part of what the Beatles is it's Paul it's Paul as musical director you know yes it's always been that that's right yes. and Paul needs that control not to feed his ego or to feed his ambition but to maintain the standards that have been set in the band. You That's know? right. He's, he's the most producery of them, you know, and I can't imagine that he'd want somebody coming in with a conflicting vision because what's the point of having their own band? It's you not know? the Beatles. It's, it's, it ceases to be the Beatles when you've got these other big 
musical personalities. There's enough big musical personalities as it is, uh, you know, with John and George. Yeah, and I get the fact that George is trying to push back on that dynamic and that may be a way of doing that. But the thing that I would counter with, you know, because this is the bullshit that, you know, that I'm sure is going on is like, oh, Paul just doesn't want to lose, you know, his place of dominance. It's kind of like, okay, if these guys are cool with this premise of we can bring in one person each, then Paul's got to be able to bring in a person too. But that would never fly, you know, like to suggest that only John and George should be allowed to bring people in is to suggest that Paul needs to be taken down. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, it's, it, I mean, it's also just not fair. Right. But that, that's what I mean about like, oh, they should have had a bigger Beatles collective. And Paul was putting a, a stop on it because he was in the position of power. But sometimes I feel like that argument is a suggestion that it's bad that Paul was in. Like, oh, I yeah. think there's, a, I there's an assumption. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree because it, to say that is basically to um, suggest that there's something wrong musically with the status quo. So, right. I mean, the Beatles actually is Paul, you know, as the musical leader. That, that's, yeah. what, that's, that's the only Beatles any of us have ever known and anything else yeah. is uh, fantasy at this point, right? So... It's a strange concept to me. Like, what are you going to do? Bring in Clapton or Dylan or something, yeah. and think. And also, like, what does you think that Paul's going to shrink in front of those guys? Like, <laughs> right, Paul's right, like, right, right. like nobody. Like, I, I, I don't think any of that would diminish Paul's strength. And it's true. Like Billy coming in didn't change anything. You yeah, know, it's not he like- was quite happy to to. Yeah tell Billy what to play as he should do about his own songs because right. that's what every composer slash musical director slash arranger, whatever you want to call him, would do. And frankly, in Billy's position, that's what you would want. I just don't think it's cool to be like, well, those guys should have been allowed to bring in a person and then, but Paul, and Paul's going to live with it. If Paul was like, okay, guys, we can all bring in one person. You like this idea of a larger idea of the Beatles, then they should all be allowed to bring in people and that wouldn't work. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you know, to be fair, I think common sense prevails and they don't do it, you know. And, <laughs> exactly. And, well, that's the thing is those guys laugh when Paul's yeah, like, come yeah, on. I, th- I think they know very well that it's not going to work. And, and look, yeah. you know, obviously in the end, we know how it ends. Billy Preston does come in and does elevate the the group musically for this project and that's great you know and and I think Paul was fine with that and Billy Preston's very much a background figure anyway I mean obviously he makes very important musical contributions to those songs but you know he's still he's still in the background he's not a creative force in the group he's he he goes and sits on the keyboard and 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 does his thing. He's very much a sideman, and uh, there doesn't right. seem to be any sort of creative, um, apart from for what he plays, which is very, which is very much driven by his own creativity. Um, yeah, yeah. There's no sort of, yeah. There's no like uh, major, no real tension. Force. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah, he's not kind of leaning into, well, I think we should. And, and I think that's, yeah, yeah. Like, as we just discussed, what Paul doesn't want. So this idea of like exactly. the Beatles and, you know, John sort of says like Sgt. Pepper, like maybe we could have that. And that kind of makes sense if they have like this band of like buddies who drop by occasionally. I mean, maybe that would be okay, but one gets the sense that, that there probably would have been power dynamics even with that situation. Yeah, but also I was just going to say as, like, as a session player, you know, like mm-hmm. anyone who is out there thinking that Billy would have been like offended or, uh, you know, somehow sort of affronted by Paul mm-hmm. leaning in and saying, hey, you know, can you uh, do it more like this or whatever? Like that's, you know, that only a very egotistical and self-centered musician would right. react that way right, right. because that's exactly what someone like Billy Preston wants to, to hear. He wants to be given direction because right. it's Paul's song and Paul's not telling him play these chord voicings and play this melodic line. He's right. giving him like stylistic and structural, uh, you know, sort of guidance and then letting Billy do his 100% do his thing, but, you know, within the parameters of the song that Paul wrote. It's a completely natural and normal um, exchange between the person who wrote the song and the session player. Right, right. So they had a need for him on this project where Paul couldn't go and play the piano like he would usually do. It was kind of like one or the other, right? So they needed a keyboardist. Not that Paul and... Billy are equal. I mean, I I love what Paul plays on the piano, but he's a different kind of, you know, Completely keyboardist different. than yeah than yeah. Billy's I mean, like he, insane. He's he, just... he couldn't do what Billy can do, and no. mind you, Billy couldn't do a lot of the things that Paul could do. Not technically, technically he could, but right. stylistically he he wouldn't. You right, know, it's right, different palette. Well, that's the thing is that I love what Paul plays on Let It Be, and I love what Paul plays on Say a Day in a Life. Don't, they aren't complicated, but what he plays is perfect, in my opinion. No, I think Paul's piano playing yeah. is always really appropriate. And, and also just he has a real voice on the piano. There's, it's not... Um, yeah. He, he's, he's got a recognisable style. He's got certain signatures and that's all part of what we love about some of those piano songs you know the the songs Beatles songs where Paul is on piano you know you can't divorce that from the song and say oh someone else could have played piano better it doesn't doesn't work like that so you can see they are trying to change the dynamics. And again, I, I want to pick up on this because, again, I watched a little bit more and I'm, I'm thinking through my perspective on John and what, what John's doing because I just see such a dual impulse in John to heal and connect with Paul. And I do think uh, there's an underlying desire to flaunt Yoko and hurt Paul a little bit throughout this. I, I suspect there is an anger an underlying anger about whatever happened in 68 where John, cause that's a bit of a betrayal to suggest that Yoko's coming in. And later in the year where it's like, these won't be Lennon McCartney. I think John is kind of pushing at this all year with Paul. That's my, that's what I read yeah. from him. And, it, and it's hard cause sometimes John is being very nice. Like at that very end scene before they got on the, go on the roof, you can see how John is an excellent 
both counterpart to Paul, but it's John's leadership skills are pretty extraordinary there where he calms Paul down and he's kind of, John is very steady, like, yeah, it's not ideal, but we'll be okay. And Paul's so nervy and wants to push things and John is such a good tonic for him. And you do get a confidence, like even though John is insecure, very insecure in his own ways, John is more insecure interpersonally in that he doesn't want people to leave him. But sometimes John is just like, we're going to be amazing. I know that, Paul. Just calm down. I trust us, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he, he probably is not, you know, Paul's probably a bit of an overthinker at times. Yes. Um, and, and obsessive. John said this about yeah. Paul once that I thought was interesting that he's like, Paul is obsessive. And I, I think that John can overthink, you know, interpersonal stuff in his mind. But I think like Paul musically and creatively can probably be obsessive. I think John is... Um, has an instinctive trust in his own and therefore others, like especially Paul's, you know, because because of we know how in in like how high an esteem he holds Paul in. He yeah. I think he transfer because you know because John, you know, like he's he can do all that brilliant wordplay off the cuff and he's yeah. such a such a creative genius in yeah. in in an instinctive and sharp way and yeah. i think that translates to his sort of ability to just um you know trust in his instincts creatively and then i yes. think the byproduct of that is that he probably puts the same if not more trust in paul because of the high esteem yeah. that he holds Paul in creatively as well, you know, if, if that makes sense. So I think that's that's with that grounded force as opposed to Paul's sort of obsessive perfectionism. And, and I mean, I think Paul has that as well in, in a different way, you know. Um, in a different way, in a different way. I think when Paul's in the zone creatively, he trusts his instincts to write and be in the moment. But when it comes to performing, like even though I think Paul loves performing, more so than John, actually, in the end. But John, as a person in the world, I think is yes. more confident that on his, like he's he's more verbal. He's yeah. more confident in his skills to seduce and, and charm no matter what. It's kind of like that very first day. Remember when Paul was so impressed with John just like making up the, the words to come and go with me? John can do that. Probably better than Paul can do that. Yeah, and uh, Paul is I think more nervous and insecure about about the way the world will see him like about yeah. as in about like the way he or they are going to present to the public and John is super confident in that regard right he yeah. from day 1 all the way to his death right like he's the one who is happy to let the cameras in and bring the interviewers and get the press in and, you know, sound bites and, and headlines. That's his bread and butter, right? Like he can do. He shines the, when the, the attention's he can on sell, him. Exactly. He can sell an idea. He can, he can interview brilliantly and come off yep. just sharp and witty and, and everything, right? And Paul is much more camera shy and much yep. less willing to talk 
to people and talk to the press and and um, give. Yeah, he's like, like what about okay. my private side? You know, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I think Paul's confidence is is in the creative process. Yes, whereas John's confidence is in the is how he can present off the cuff. You yes, know, and he can yes. show you know himself to the world. Yes, he knows that when the cameras are on that John's like, I know what will come out of me is cool. Like I, you know, cause that's his skill. His wordplay is extraordinary. Yeah. His ability to just remember, like we were talking about, like put together the, the, um, the, lyrics, the lyrics in a way that's super creative and amazing, you know? And it's, um, it's interesting because John later in the year was talking to an interviewer. I think Annie Nightingale, or I, th- I think we quoted this in the breakup series, but John talks about like, when the cameras are on, he's happy. It's when they're gone that he feels depressed, you know? And, yes, it, and exactly. that that's the thing is, I think that's what Paul gives him. Paul constantly gives John, like Paul finds John in endlessly uh, amusing. It's so funny, Paul is always yeah. giving John a stage to perform. And I think John loves Paul's eyes on him because Paul sees John as brilliant. And so, you know, it's kind of like a, a parent that adores you. Yeah, you know? yeah. And also, like, it's not just, you know, it comes out not just with his wordplay and his, co- like, comic sort of um, clever yeah, yeah, yeah. Skills, creativity. Yeah. It's also his ability um, to say the right thing at the right time. Like, he, in yeah. interviews, he always had, like, a brilliant response or a brilliant comment that was um, repeatable, you know, like sort of catchy. Yes, yes, like, yes. Sound you know, bites. Yes. Sound bites, right. right. And, and any t- like any context, it doesn't matter what it was about, he always could respond with such eloquence and sharpness, you know. I think um, that probably drove Yoko crazy because she she'd be like, that was my idea. And then yeah, he turned right. around and made it so much more clever. And they're like, John, you're a genius, you know? Yeah, yeah. Even like, you know, I always think of for some reason that quote in sixty eight, I think, uh, when they're doing that interview in New York, I think it is the one where, or maybe it's the press conference. I can't remember, but it's where he says, where they're talking about Apple, you know, yeah. and he says, it's so that someone doesn't have to come in to an office and beg or something. And yeah. then he says, probably yours. You know that quote? And he yeah, said, yeah, look yeah, down yeah. the barrel of the camera and says, probably yours. And yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. Such a great, like that's classic John quote well that's a great example that's a great example of what we're talking about because apparently apple was more paul's idea like i think that this was his baby to start off and everybody else bought in george says that like this was originally from paul and they all loved it and bought in but then paul's not able to sell it when they go to new york paul's pretty crap at talking about it john sells it you know, he's just, he's amazing at that. And it, and, and it almost sounds derogatory when I'm saying John sells it. I, I, but I speak, I think that speaks to John's um, genius verbally. I mean, yeah. he's, he's just incredible. And beyond that, I must say, watching this show, I found John so charismatic and interesting oh, yeah. to watch. Like I felt attracted to John, not like, I want to jump John's bones. I just felt very drawn to John. 
it's not just kind of like, he's funny. There's something incredibly seductive about John. He's so, so adorable and amazing and funny. And you know what I mean? Like there's some, yeah. he's very watchable. It's, it's, it just always makes me think of, it's been said by definitely multiple people who knew John that you, that, you know, when you were with him, all you could see was him, you know, that he, he just was so magnetic and so um, just amazing to be around. And that, that's, that's, I think what, what, that's the thing you're talking about. You yeah. Know? Like a lot like, of people I've spoken to who are, you know, sort of fans, but not deep fans, um, watching Get Back have really been drawn to him in that same way. Like, wow, John is so funny and so cool and so interesting and, you know. And he makes it fun. And he's just, like, I can see the energy he brings. There's something that would be really fun about that. Whereas I feel like if I was with Paul, I would just, watch him, <laughs> you yeah, know, it's yeah. just kind of It'd like, hard okay. To, yeah. Yeah. Because Paul's intense and like he, he does give John the stage a lot of the time. He, he will participate with John so that John's got something to feed him. But I think he also does know that John likes the stage and, and Paul clearly finds John super amusing too. And so that works incredibly well for their partnership. Yeah. One of the really interesting scenes for me, in the film is the, uh, the, the don't let me down workshop bit, you know, early on mm-hmm. when they're, when they're, you know, they have that session when they're trying to work out what to do with the bridge of don't let me down. They spend ages and ages just on the bridge. Um, and, you know, John says, this is the weakest part of the song. We need to do something with it. And they try out those backing vocals that yeah. Paul is kind of pushing and, uh, and I've 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 now heard the full audio of that session, um, and um, it's really interesting. It's actually an amazing window into the dynamics of the three of them, mu- like musically and creatively. Um, and actually, John is like it's funny. Like he's the most. I find that he's the most positive and productive out of the three of them in that scene. Like Paul and George, I just want to fucking kill both of them because they don't listen to each other. Yeah. Um, they, and they're both too busy pushing their own ideas to actually try any one idea properly. You know, like Paul saying, uh, Paul wants to do this, this call and answer backing vocal, right? Like Paul, okay, so put, this is Paul's thing. Is This is what we're going to do to fix, you know, to improve this section. And Paul's got this one idea in his head that he's, that he's doing over and over again. And he's just trying to get George to sing the other harmony to it, right? To just yeah. fucking hear what it's going to sound like, right? Yeah. And George just won't fucking do it and it's not like he's not saying no paul i don't want to do it he's just not doing it it's fucking infuriating like george is on his own little train trying to work out another another thing you know another vocal part and he's also trying to work out some guitar parts but it's like 
George, just fucking sing the harmony so that we can hear what it sounds like. Because if we never fucking hear what it sounds like, then how, you know, it's just like, it's so frustrating. And, And then same the other way around, like George keeps saying, what about this? What about this? And Paul just ignores him because he's just, all he can think about is trying to work out this thing that he wants to do. And it's just like, Paul, just shut the fuck up for two seconds and listen to what George is trying to say. Yeah, yeah. And, but he just won't, you know. And it's it's incredibly frustrating listening to it because you're just like, this actually didn't need to take two hours, you know. Like if they just actually listened to each other. But it's just interesting. Like John, throughout that whole time, is you know he's just sort of listening to everyone he's engaging in everyone's different ideas he's positive and encouraging about everything why doesn't he say hey george let's try it through one- once I-, I don't know I-, I don't know that's a good question yeah he's productive in the sense that he's not um he's try he's listening to to everyone and he's he's um giving he's sort of making his own contributions in a way that's not it's neither dominating nor dismissive. Yeah, um, yeah, I get and, that. And it's, yeah. it's sort of helpful. Like maybe he needed to step up and say, hey, guys, Well, Paul come says on, that to him. Try your thing once and let's try your thing once. Um, okay, he does turn to John at some point, right? And he says something like, well, why aren't you saying something? Look, the other thing is John, I think also maybe another reason why John doesn't speak up more is because Paul, it's Paul's. This is Paul's idea. This thing about the backing. Oh yeah, 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 the call yeah, and response yeah. thing, right? So John probably doesn't really know what Paul's trying to achieve here, right? He's probably just letting Paul do his thing, and he probably thinks, you know, Paul's going to make this brilliant, like he always yeah. does. So I'm yeah. just going to let him do. And and I think a problem with Paul's approach here, which might be partly conscious on his behalf because he might be trying to avoid being the overbearing, you know, whatever, is that he's not, he's also not saying, George, I really need you to just sing this harmony so that we can hear what it sounds like. And then we'll do your thing. Can we just do one thing at a time? You know, he's sort of not, he he doesn't even do that. that. He's just on his own, you know, he just keeps sort of plugging away. Yeah. And he's very conscious of the Hey Jude issue that, you know, like he brings that up a couple of times. So he knows that he's got to be careful of doing this, but I think you're right. This gets him into an awkward space where he's bending over backwards to not be like that, but he still kind of wants, wants to get his way. And that just doesn't work out. It would be better if he was just definite, like George, I need you to try it this way. And then I promise we'll do it your way. There's no question that it, that Paul was right about, Hey Jude. I mean, it like, you know, I don't think anyone could possibly argue that, that there should have been guitar, guitar melodies in between yeah, each yeah, vocal, yeah, yeah. vocal phrase. But, yeah. you know, I guess, I guess what we don't know is how it went down. You know? That's right. Um, so yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the other thing is that in the lunchroom scene, John does address that I don't hear the flutes and he's kind of making the point that sometimes you're too dominant and I don't hear it. So like, to your point, like John doesn't know what Paul's trying to achieve because he apparently, you know, when he says, I don't hear the flutes, I think he's saying like, I don't necessarily hear what you hear. So sometimes I'm interested, but then he said, sometimes he has to get George engaged because then he's got an ally. Then he's not overrun by Paul. So yeah, 
I mean, it's being creative together is difficult. It's always difficult, especially when people yeah. are sensitive. And I think that's the problem is that yeah. at some point George got sensitive, you know. And I think I actually think also that John also might be trying to be sensitive towards George in this scene as well, because I think almost everything John says is backing up Paul against what George yes. he's doing it in a fairly subtle and not yeah, too that's an excellent strong point. kind of way. Like even when he talks about what is it? Um, George suggests, Oh, well maybe, maybe we should do, you know, cause Paul's saying let's make everything light, you know, in this section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then George is like, well, maybe we should make the rest of the song light and make this section really big. And, and um, John is like, yeah, but we've sort of already got the, you know, the verse is already sort of light and the chorus is already sort of big. So I don't think that's yeah, really going to yeah. work. You know, so you know, every little sort of George suggestion that comes up is just gently knocked back by John in favour of what Paul's saying, you know. So Well, that's fair. Know. That's fair. And that that is countering my point earlier. Then John is stepping up into controlling his song yeah. Um, in a, a good way in that he doesn't want to hurt George and he's trying to support Paul. At some point, Paul is kind of like, well, could you step up a little bit more because more, yeah. you're trying to be nice and that's not working either. You know, like both, you know, John later identifies the problem that Paul's too dominant with his ideas. And, you know, and it, it like Paul has addressed this later that it was, a problem for him because he'd be dominant with his ideas and really push them. And then he'd really hold back. And then they'd be like, well, where are your ideas, Paul? Yeah, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's a tough one. Yeah. But then this gets to my next, uh, the next point that I wanted to discuss was George suggesting that he do his own album, which, you know, he floats this idea and John, John is supportive and <laughs> yoga is very supportive. She's just like, yeah, do that. <laughs> um, you know, that then John could do that. Um, but I, I think that, um, I think that would have been really good for George. Like in, in my opinion, the dynamics are such that he almost had to go externally and do something yeah. that made them watch because internal, he can't, Lennon and McCartney, they're just on the same wave. Even if Lennon and McCartney are in their own intense battles, they're still so deeply connected in a way that's pretty exclusive. Yeah. That I think that would have been really good. Now, I mean, George floats this, John's supportive. So there's no reason George didn't do that. Like he wasn't being held back by anybody. No. So, you know, like George didn't do it because he didn't want to do it. You know, he just like, it's hard to do your own album. And I think yeah, that, you know, it would have been a busy. daunting prospect for him, I think. That's right. And, you know, I talked to Chris O'Dell and in her book on the Beatles, her autobiography, she talks about the fact that it was only after Paul quits, like even though he had been floating mm -hmm. this idea for a long time, so it was on his radar, but until Paul actually, you know, accidentally, you know, blows up the Beatles <laughs> with Paul quits the Beatles, whatever, we should have a word for that because it's, you know, I don't really, I don't think he meant to have that headline i think he meant no. it as a declaration of independence i don't think he meant i think he was like i want the world to know i'm doing my own thing i don't think he wanted to say and i never want to do anything with the beatles because as we discussed he doesn't say that you know I, I also think that he was being typically like blunt 
and insensitive. Uh, a little insensitive in the way he approached that interview, much like he did when John died, um, in a way that he didn't mean, you know, in a way that yeah. came off very differently to, to what he meant to do, what he meant to say. He's not great um, verbally sometimes. No, he's you know? not. It's just and, like and, and and I think there was I think there was some anger and some resentment I do too. behind I do his words. But, yes. But, but but certainly not what you know, he did not intend to blow up. Yes, and I think in both of those situations, he's driven by emotion and then that's what comes out wrong. Like I think that yeah. when Paul's highly emotional, he can't communicate well. He unlike closes John. Up. Yeah. 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 So in that situation, he's angry at the other Beatles and specifically at Lennon. And because the one thing he does say is that he does not foresee. So he's saying to John, like, look, okay, I just did my own album. Cool. I'm now okay with that. And he wants John to know that. And, but he doesn't say, he never says anything about the Beatles being done. And it's unfortunate that the press ran with that because he definitely did not mean to do that. But anyway, that's a different both, discussion. I think in both instances, this interview and the It's a Drag bit yeah. when John dies, I think he is very curt in his response. Yes. You know, like like in this interview, the McCartney one, he's like, yes, no. Yeah. Not that I can see. You know, it's yeah, very yeah, yeah. like one monosyllabic sort of short, curt um, kind of yep. uh, – <laughs> impatient responses yes and, and and that's a bit like the it's a drag comment as well you know it's like it comes off as arrogant but yeah. it's not it's kind of because he can't yeah yeah arrogant and insensitive and and dismissive you know um but but it's actually i think he's that's part of his his sort of like fight or flight response to yes being deeply <laughs> um, you know, affected. Yeah, if you something. want the full, if you want the full emotional range, you go listen to his music. Go to music. He'll probably yeah. exactly. He probably put it in there. But yeah. yeah, it would have been really great. And Paul has said that he didn't know about that at the time, and he wished he had. Uh, you know, I wonder if Paul would have encouraged George. Well, he was encouraging you know John. It, he's encouraging John, and in that conversation, he encourages Ringo because Ringo's already talking about sentimental journey. Yeah. So I think he probably would have actually. Yeah, it's interesting. But the thing I was thinking about that is that it would have been good if George, like, so if we're thinking about the Beatles as a family and Lennon McCartney, in my mind, Lennon McCartney are the married couple and the others are like the other adult family, family members. The problem for me is if in this time, Lennon and McCartney had gone and done their own albums. I mean, John did with Yoko, but it's not a proper album. I think if John yeah. and Paul had gone and done their own albums, it, it would have triggered competitiveness, you know, rather yeah. than, oh, I see what you can do. I appreciate you. Like they already appreciate each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that John still wants to be more appreciated. I think he continues to do stuff on his own to be like, see, Paul. But, I, I, you know, that's the hard part, you know. But I think it would have been good. You know who I think it would have been good for is Paul. I like if I was advising Paul McCartney at that point, I would say, hey, Paul, why don't you go and do your own album? Why don't you go and do the university tour with a side group 
you know, John's got his 24-7 advocate and he's doing side stuff and he's kind of flaunting it. And I feel like as much as Paul McCartney likes to perform and he'll go off and write half an album with Donovan, I suspect that John is a little bit of Paul's security blanket. That even though Paul, we can all look and see Paul is so good, I think that John is Paul's security blanket and he doesn't know he can do it on his own. Yeah, Paul also would have had the material easily to do, you know, because he's just such a a never-ending stream of of songwriting. He he would have been able to knock off an album like McCartney pretty quickly and easily and possibly at home and and all that sort of stuff and done it his little sort of indie kind of way. Um, And um, then – That would have been very helpful. Yeah, I think so too because then he he also could have compartmentalised that as a slightly different mode of operation. That's right. Um, to his Beatles work and to his work with John in the same way that John is doing his performance art and his political or whatever, his, uh, you know, exhibitionism or whatever it is. Yes. Uh, um, as his sort of other creative outlet that is in a slightly different mode or a very different mode to his work with the Beatles. Uh, and that possibly could have, uh, yeah, could have made them both, you know, uh, simultaneously like aware of yes. their own independence and their desire to be working with each other. Yes, yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. The problem with that situation is I think that would have, I think that John would have gone crazy. Like if Paul would have done, that's the problem with that situation. Totally. But just from like, if I was advising Paul McCartney, I would say, go and do this. You'll see, you can do it, which is what Linda was advising them after they, but like go and just play on your own or do an album with Donovan, a side thing, because then you'll see that John feels more secure because he's got Yoko and he's taunting you with that. John doesn't want to leave. But he's using that to say, like, yes, Paul, I might leave. And it's kind of, he's being a little bit cruel to Paul. And I think it's not because he's a cruel person. I think it's because he was hurt. And wants to get a reaction from Paul to see that he cares beyond the business of the Beatles, beyond the success of the Beatles. I often talk about, you know, John's actions being a provocation. But all I mean by that is he's using certain things such as bringing Yoko into the studio to provoke a reaction as proof that his creative partner really cares and really values him. I think John's so thirsty for acknowledgement. I mean, you know, one would think you look at Paul and clearly he adores John. Paul's attention is his acknowledgement of how much he loves and admires John. But I think John just needs excessive amounts of reassurance. And, you know, so he's pulling out the stops to get a reaction as proof that Paul would be sad if he left, knows how good he is, you know, as proof that he still has control over Paul can make him react. And whatever happened in 68, I suspect there's been no resolution of that, you know, no real discussion and, and, you know, Creative people are generally incredibly sensitive, um, emotional people, which always makes it very hard uh, to have these conversations. And I think the fact that John's playing these games 
is only a reflection of how much John cares. And he's still hurt that Paul, you know, is maybe just too powerful or has taken, I don't know, taken him for granted for too long. That seems to be what John complains and, about later. And, and, and too focused as well. He's too, he's too focused on the work, you know, like. That, that's right. That's, that's right. That's... I think it's more personal hurt with John. Like you just, you're so focused on the work. Like, what about me? I've always been there for you. You know what I mean? Like John kind of wants Paul to be a little bit jealous of Yoko and a little bit insecure. I mean, I know that sounds petty, but I think couples are like that. And they are a couple in a way. They're not like a romantic couple, but yeah. they present like a couple in a lot of, in many ways. Yeah, well, they, they call I, themselves a couple as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and that actually brings me to something that I want to talk about, which is um, the India scene. So they have this scene and Paul brings up this, like introduces it. I don't know why, probably because he legit watched the film and it was top of mind to him and he wants to talk to them. I also think it's an opportunity for him to kind of reframe India and talk about India when they're mm -hmm. on film in a way that's kind right. of safe, you know, because I think, I think that India set off a bunch of stuff between all of them that they never talked about. And yeah. so maybe Paul is trying to say like, you know, when something has happened and then afterwards you're just like, you know, in that moment, it seemed really bad. But then when you've had a bit of space, you're like, you know, and it was just, it, we were all being dumb yeah, and it's yeah. kind of like a way of talking about it. And so he's bringing it up and sort of saying, well, there was so much that was good there. Like it was great to look at. And I feel like there is a multi-layered conversation going on between John and Paul John, Paul, and George, George and Paul. Like, there's just, like, so many dynamics in that yeah. scene. Don't you think? I do, yeah. Um, George is really dismissive of the of, of all the others, I think. Yeah. Um, like, you didn't get... You're not at... You weren't taking this level. seriously yeah. and at my <laughs> level. And he's... This is what, this is my challenge personally with George is he can be a bit haughty sometimes. George is studying meditation, which is all about not being judgmental. And sometimes he can be <laughs> incredibly judgmental. And that is my tension. Like, I love the fact that George embraces this and takes it seriously. And then I get frustrated with George for not being a little bit more accepting if people need to take it at their own speed. You know what I mean? Yeah, but also human. they're like, like they're, he's human and they're his family, you know? That's so right. you can sort of see. Uh, and he know. wants them to take it as serious. I think you're right in the understanding that it's family. Like if it's somebody, George probably would be lovely to somebody that was struggling exactly. with it that wasn't in the band. But it's Paul. Right. He's like, this is so meaningful. And I'm telling, oh, you're so frustrating. Like, I, why don't you just trust me and take it yeah. seriously? It'll be good for you. Plus, there might be a little sprinkling of this is something that I have over you guys for, for a change. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. So there I'm might better be at this his, than you guys. That, that little, <laughs> yeah, that little opportunistic moment for him to, to take the high ground um, you know, and to just to be the superior. Uh, I think it's all of that. I think it's all of those things. And I agree with you that he would be probably much more sympathetic to anybody else, you know. 
I um, find that with George. Like I, I love some of the stories that I hear about George with other people. It's like, oh my yeah. God, he's so amazing to people. And then I read yeah. stuff he says about Paul and I'm just like, oh, George, you're such a dick sometimes because he can't be normal with Paul. They've got these deep rooted issues and that comes from hurt. I think that comes yeah. from like, uh, we great. can hurt each other and I'm still fucking angry and hurt by you, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. not from not caring. Yeah. But, um, but this scene is interesting too, because I think there's John and Paul dynamics that are going on that George almost doesn't seem to like George is so in his own hurt that like it was something that was George led and he's kind of, he still believes in it and he's still upset that it kind of fell apart. And he's like, you know, and it, it shouldn't have you guys. There's the George has his own deeply felt issues with that. And so that's what he's concerned about. Like, do you regret it? And it's really interesting that they talk about that. Like, do you regret trusting me on this? And Paul's like, he's like, no, I don't. And I think that George doesn't ever hear Paul on that level. Like that Paul's like, no, I liked it. I just didn't like it as much as you, but I still liked it, you know, mm -hmm. and that's okay too. And Paul says something really interesting. Like Linda and I were watching it and Linda said, well, didn't you want to go into the villages? And that's Paul and Linda's wisdom is kind of like among the people like George is taking to this learning to a, a philosophical, spiritual level, which is really important. Yeah. But Paul and Linda's spiritual is being among normal people in the mm. everyday. And pa Paul's like, don't you wish in nature? And don't you wish we had done that? And George and John kind of dismiss that. And I feel like that was dismissed in the 70s. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sure. yeah. But I there's agree. also the the whatever John. I mean, I'm just going to call this out because I haven't seen anyone mention this, but whatever the fuck John is doing when he's talking to Paul, he's being a giant weirdo or something. And he's sort of saying like, well, what were we doing in your room? Who's that writing songs in your room? And what should we call it? There is something very, I don't know, there's something going on and I, I don't want to come to any conclusions about it, but there's something interesting going on there. Definitely. Whether I mean, it's a very enigmatic and strange scene, and I, I don't think anyone really understands it. I don't think I don't. I've. It could be John just being a giant weirdo. Yeah. You know, yeah. it is possible. But fully possible because he's sometimes like, like that. Yeah. Exactly, but it, it definitely feels like something more uh, loaded than that. It does. What were you doing? What were you doing? I don't really know, you know, but it's like we totally sort of put our own personalities under. We weren't sort of really very truthful there. You know, I mean, we could have, I mean, for, you know, it's things like sneaking behind his back and sort of saying it's a bit like school, isn't it? We're also just writing right. all them songs. Oh, that was, uh, that was probably when we did. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. There's something going on that I feel like John is pushing Paul. It's even that scene when they're together after mm. Peter Sellers leaves and John is like, you know, ask me why I'll say I love you. Like there's, John is dropping stuff that I don't know what to do with. It's there though. We've talked about this, like who knows? We don't, we don't know, know. Yeah. but I don't want to pretend like it isn't there either. It's kind yeah. of like, Let's acknowledge there's something going on. And, uh, you know, I watched Paul's reaction very carefully. And Paul, he just <laughs> kind of, 
ignores it. You know, he just, he's like, and anyways, he doesn't react. And he does react when John is like, um, with the lyrics, that's when he's like, we need a schedule, which sounds very weird in the middle of John's rambling. He like, even even that reaction is an, is a kind of non-reaction as well, because I mean, obviously it is a reaction because we've talked about how bizarre it is. And it's, it's, he's obviously trying to deflect something, but it's still a non-reaction, you know, it's still, he's still refusing to engage with what, whatever it is that John's doing there. And in that scene, his strategy for (laughs) non-engagement is to have an outburst about the schedule or whatever the fuck he is doing. (laughs) Um, Whereas, you know, maybe in this scene, it's maybe it's a similar thing, but his strategy for non-engagement is simply to pretend that John's not there or the John, not John's not there. John <laughs> didn't say the, the things or do the things that he's doing. It, it is actually yeah. similar in a way. He, in both cases, he just ignores the behavior and continues as if nothing happened, you know, just one of them, he's a bit more weird about it. You know, yeah, yeah. Is, like he's trying to catch up and off in one. And then the yeah. other one, he's just like, I'm just going to pretend like you're not being a weirdo. Doing what Mind you're doing. You. And, yeah. Yeah. Mind you, George doesn't seem to notice it either. So maybe John's just a sure. giant weirdo all the time. And this is my issue with uh, Jackson cutting a lot of this stuff. And to your point, like maybe he just doesn't think it, maybe he thinks it's just John being a weirdo and he doesn't think it's important. He's kind of like, eh, this is not central to our story. I think it is in that John and Paul are having some kind of a ongoing conversation in this period that we can't Mm -hmm. decipher. So that's kind of what I've just decided. But I also do want to flag that there's stuff that exists that's going on in this time, you know? Sure. It's really silly to ignore it um, because it's there and it's strange and it's, and it's unique. Um, when you put it all together, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, we we just don't know what it is. I guess. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's and hard. it's funny because I just have to leave my mind, like, be like, okay. It's okay. Just okay not, not to have know. an opinion. I'm not going to have a judgment <laughs> yeah, on that. Okay. Just leave it blank. Yeah. Well, exactly. I think that the um, the only thing you can sort of take away from the acknowledgement of it is to say that. Whatever it is, things are going on here between the two of them. It's, you know, don't try and say that their relationship is completely sort of disengaged or cold or whatever. Something's happening. We don't really know what it is or what it's about. But, you know, we've got to acknowledge that there are there, there seems to be a strange sort of messaging happening between them. That's right. That's right. And we can see little bits and pieces of it in the film. In fact, I have a friend who called me the other day and she was just like, she she likes the Beatles, but has never dug into the story. And she was she called me about that scene. She's like, what's going on in that scene? And I was like, it's funny because I've listened to, listened to some takes on this. <laughs> Nobody's ever mentioned that. And she's not listened to my podcast. I've never talked to her about this. And she just knows I like the Beatles. And she called me about that scene. And she actually commented on the, um, the, when John says that I'm free, like the Yoko divorce situation yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. And she was like, 
That was weird because John didn't look super happy about it. It seemed like he was weirdly calling attention to it, which is something that we flagged in the breakup series. Yeah. I know a jean jacket's probably just like, John's happy, but it's a little over the top. I don't know. Yeah, I'm a bit on the fence about this one, personally. Yeah. Um, Because I think, again, it wouldn't be out of character for John to handle that moment weirdly, <laughs> um, you know, or, or also like performatively. Um, sure. You know. I, but I, I do feel it's performative. Of... That's the thing. Yeah, I know. But, but, but I guess what I'm saying is John being performative doesn't necessarily mean anything because yes, yes, he's yes. That's, a performative that's true. dude, you know. But, yeah, that's... I also think I, I also completely take your point that it is – strange um and feels a little inauthentic and feels a little yeah it feels inauthentic put on or something well yeah. that's the thing is i don't i'm not reading too much into it <laughs> like i don't know what john is trying to communicate but it feels a bit inauthentic yoko looks happy and then you know so she gets this nose and she's happy and she's interrupting but when it's done in this song like we didn't hear the whole song but john and paul yeah. are really communicating through this song And it's a song about Paul basically saying everything that John needs to hear. I don't want you to leave. I'm not going to leave you. And John is responding like it's a call and response version of it. And then the fact that Yoko kisses John and John starts to say this, it's just, again, there's like really weird dynamics and like there's something else going on here. There's games being played in this. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you wanted to be super cynical you could you know i wonder about yoko's timing as well there whether whether she, it's a little opportunity oh for sure like you know, we don't know when she got the news exactly you know it's presented as if she found out in that moment and rushed to john but who you know maybe she was feeling very uncomfortable in that moment with what was I going so. on between john and paul and she took maybe she took that opportunity to to uh you know get in there and, and assert herself into the... I think so. And knowing what the rest of the song was like, where they're really communicating, you know, oh, I know you'll never leave me. And yeah, yeah. I don't know. Unless she got the message in that exact... Like if, if Peter Brown had been, you know, in the whispering picture, into her yeah. ears, yeah, then yeah. I'd be like, okay, that was just her immediate response. But we don't really know that. She just gets up there. And the kiss is very weird and awkward, by the way. Like it's, I don't know. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't look natural. It feels inauthentic. It, it reads weirdly. Yes. So. Um, yes. I, I, I do agree. And the dream I had was true. Yes, the dream I had was true. I'm just a child. Uh, did you notice when John, right before the India scene, Ringo shows up and he's wearing his India shirt and John kind of tugs at it and he says, oh, have you been to India? He's kind of playing. He's like, oh, I've been to India. And then uh, he goes, I was looking at mine last night right beside my pepper suits. And he's looking at Ringo really, it's almost wistful. And the fact that John said, I was looking at mine next to my pepper suits last night was also kind of touching, you know, I found, like, I went back and watched that scene three times in a row just because there's something very emotional about it. And, right. I'm, you know, I'm sure John is looking at his wardrobe thinking, what am I wearing to the set tomorrow, you know? 
But just the fact that he was looking at his India shirts and his pepper suits, it, it was, it seemed to me like a bit of a dream that, you know, that had passed or something like that, you know? And, and I yeah. obviously am probably reading a lot into it, but it just, like, I find that with John, there's always a bit of a sadness when it comes to India and the Maharishi and... Uh, he seems quite romantic at that time in terms of like love is love is all you need and you know yeah. they go to India and like I think he was feeling good he says this that he was coming out of his depression then and I think it was something that he really really believed in and I think yeah. he was incredibly let down by the Maharishi by India not working by you know what I mean yeah yeah I just think that whole period was. You know, John wrote one of his most famous songs, All You Need Is Love, at that yeah. time. It's just, it's too bad. They were on the right track, you know? Uh, yeah. I'm just a child of nature. I'm one of nature's children. One thing that I did want to pick up that we, we didn't really touch upon was George leaving. I... I just think it was interesting how George left on the day he left. He was so cool about it, you know? Yeah. He just kind of, like, he didn't make a big deal, like, that's it, I've had enough of you guys. Yeah, yeah, It was yeah. just kind of like, you know what? Uh, that's it, uh, I'm leaving. Uh, I'm leaving the band now. When? Now. Get a few places. The NME and get a few people. And Mal's response was every time I watched it, I'm like, Mal, what are you talking about? You know, when he's talking <laughs> when he's about like, like, I'll get someone to, what does he say? Like, uh, organize the, the residuals or the payments Res or whatever yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. It, it's crazy. It's like, what are you going to pay George Harrison? He's one quarter of the Beatles. Like, what? <laughs> you're not. And as if it's just like, okay, cool, you're leaving. All right, no worries. Exactly, um... exactly. <laughs> I'll get you that three days pay. Like, I, I literally think Mal was so flustered. Probably yes, that is definitely what it is. Like, I reckon. I know you know that thing where, like, I don't know, like your partner's saying, "I'm leaving you." And yeah. your brain's going a million miles an hour, your heart's beating too fast, and you just so, sort of say something that like placates the whole idea of, "Yep, yeah, this is totally normal. You're leaving." Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll, um, I'll, I'll get the key back off you. You know, like. You <laughs> yeah, know. yeah, exactly, exactly. That's but right. it was so funny. And then we didn't see this, but apparently John gets really upset and gets in George's yeah. face when he's leaving. And I find that interesting because I think that like the idea we talk about this a lot, but the idea of Anybody leaving John? Yeah. Like nobody that John loves has the right to leave him. I think that that is absolutely crushing for John. So, you know, and John, when he's hurt, gets angry. And, so. you know, I guess like contrary to what I was saying before about John being nonchalant about it and being uh, just happy to have Eric come in and replace yeah, 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 yeah. him, I think it's pretty obvious by the conversations that ensue in the following days that you know there's a concerted effort on everyone's part to to get him back including john and yoko and right. obviously you know there's the scene where 
John, you know, the famous scene where Paul's supposedly depressed and crying and then John yeah. calls and, you know, yeah. so obviously John comes in late that day and there seems to be some sort of, um, I guess, uh, feeling in the room that something's wrong with John, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and whether that's part of this thing you're talking about, that John is very affected by George leaving, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, I definitely think John is. And, and, and the remark of we'll get, we'll get clapped and that is so typical John Lennon fronting being callous, you know, that's yeah. like, it's just like he spews stuff out. Yeah, exactly. When he's very, hurt, very, you know? um, yeah. Very sort of on the attack straight away. On the attack. Know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But what I was thinking was interesting too, was Yoko actually getting on the mic afterwards and kind of like this cathartic um, kind of concert that they have afterwards, which is kind of cool. Like I kind of enjoy it. But how bold was Yoko to be just like, okay, I will step in right now. Uh, yeah. And with her, you know, unique style of um, Entertaining. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it was, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, interestingly, I actually also think that's kind of cool, even though um, a lot I've heard a lot of people sort of, uh, you know, ridicule that. Have you? I think I am just like, I've listened to Yoko too much because I'm like, well, I kind of enjoy it. Yeah. I also like, uh, you know, I went to jazz school, you know, and mm-hmm. like we did a lot of like free improvisation stuff, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, um, and like it's, that's what it is essentially. Yeah. That's what she's doing anyway. And and it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Like it's ballsy and bold and, you know, it's not particularly like attractive in the traditional sense. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. But it's, Pleasant. You know, it's, it's yeah. interesting. Like, I, I it's, it's very bold that she, like Yoko, let's be clear, Yoko is not a musician at this point. Yeah, exactly. She's and, a conceptual artist. Yeah, she's she's just happy to do do her thing and, and have a sort of commanding presence in that moment, which is kind of impressive, really. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's literally akin to walking into a studio with Picasso because they're as famous as Picasso. Yeah. And and being like, I don't do art, but step away. I'm going to yeah. show you my stuff. I'll throw and some I can, paint on the... I'll throw some, you know, let me show you what I could do. And I can imagine like an artist being like, okay, let's see yeah. it. And kind of like them being impressed at just the boldness. And it's kind of fun. I think it's a different thing if, you know, this person was saying to Picasso, now let me actually start to add to your work. You yeah, know, that's yeah, a different yeah. thing. But the Beatles are at the top of their game and the yeah. top of the world as musicians. And so, yeah, I mean, it's cool that she jams. I, I also think it's it's not unexpected that the rest of the Beatles would be like, that's fine, but also she's not joining the group, you know? Yeah. And it just, like, the thing that strikes me is just how how eccentric Yoko is and how kind of hilariously self-centered she is. You know, and yeah. it, it, 
it's really like I think that that is pervasive through this time too. Like I think John knows what he's doing by bringing Yoko, but sometimes I feel like Yoko is like I think she's there for her reasons, but also she's kind of oblivious. You know, uh, like I was looking, listening to the scene of her going, John, John, you know, is going louder yeah. and louder and louder. And it's kind of like, Yoko, stop. Like, nobody, <laughs> what are you doing? You know what I mean? And that's occasionally when I look at her, I'm just like, does she think that, like, there's such an entitlement in some ways. You know what I mean? Like, that's what kind of is impressive in some ways. Like, wow. And then in some ways, it's like shocking, you know? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I completely agree. Yeah. And what struck me about that is listening to it again, is that she's so soft a lot of the times when she's talking. And then when she was screaming, John, it got so ferocious. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like such a dichotomy between the Yokos, you know? Yeah. And that's yeah. what May, May always talked about is that, you know, Yoko plays different roles. And I think that's important to acknowledge too. I just think that that, that spectrum of Yoko needs to be acknowledged too. Yeah. So. Well, I think as we've spoken about, I think Peter Jackson has definitely cut it to be more uh, balanced towards the uh, the the softer Yoko, the the gentle right. Yoko, and and as you and I have talked about, and I've heard some others comment on as well, um, it, I, I do think that that is a a deliberate manipulation on yeah. Jackson's part. I yeah. do completely understand why he's done it. Yeah. And I, but I also do think that in some ways it robs Yoko of, of her own personality a little bit. And I think, you know, she, in some ways, you know, it's, it's a shame that we need to kind of silence her and, and, and kind of cut her most um, active and vocal moments in order to like absolve her in some way, which is not, that that that's how it feels. I think a little bit, which it shouldn't. That's that I shouldn't love that. Be the point. Case, you know? No, that's a, that's an excellent point. Is that like I feel like the view of Yoko of her being sweet and nice and benign is wrong because that's not the reason to like Yoko. Because that's not exactly. Yoko. It's not her. There are it's- reasons to like her. She's defiant. She refuses to be ignored. You know, she is eccentric and interesting. Like those are all reasons. In my opinion, that's what I mean. It's like when like, you watch when you watch the Jackson cut. Yeah, you, she doesn't really like. We just don't see her doing anything in in Get Back or anything much. And um, I just think yeah. it's it'd be nice to be able to have a more nuanced view of Yoko, where we see who she actually is, but we still yeah. don't have to go and say Yoko broke up the Beatles just because right. there's this bold, eccentric, interesting woman, Japanese woman. Self-centered, like, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oblivious, self-involved, all those yeah, things. The controlling, bad and the manipulating, yeah. like all the things. Yeah. Um, she can be all those things and it doesn't mean that we have to blame her for the breakup of the Beatles. That's right. You know? And it does feel a bit like we've we've had to make this call one way or the other with it which is silly you know yes yes i kind of feel like yoko at the end of the day might just want to be acknowledged as an interesting artist yeah i mean look i think firstly the beatles were totally into experimental stuff yeah experimental sounds experimental ideas 
Um, so I think they would have dug it from that point of view. Um, and, um, you know, they were all also just like getting lots of emotions off their chest. Yeah. By yeah. Making lots of loud noises. And I think they didn't really give a shit who else was oh my involved God. in that. And Yoko would have been so happy. I honestly think that Paul McCartney should have spearheaded an album for Yoko Ono that I think that would have helped a lot in the oh, yeah. situation. I like to do a, a Yoko Ono album. Not with the Beatles, but on her own. I think yeah, that, like yeah. Yoko wanted attention. She wanted fame. She was an artist who wanted to express herself. And I John think John would that, never have let it happen, though. What do you mean? Well, like, like je- from a like jealousy point of view. Well, I mean, not just Paul produced. I mean, Paul and John and like the Beatles, right. if they would have supported Yoko. I think John right, would have been thrilled. Right, right, yeah, right. yeah, not not like a Paul McCartney, Yoko Ono. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, Paul yeah, no. producing Yoko, you know, which, no. which, by the way, would probably have been a match made in heaven musically in the sense I think it would have been an amazing. Paul and would have been super open to her experimental ideas and would have been able to contribute really interestingly to them, plus have the musical nous to – you know, make it into something maybe more substantial if, you know, like musically substantial, um, if that's what, you know. They yeah, yeah. But, uh... Yeah. No, I think it would have been good for Paul to have said to Yoko, like, John and I will do an album, we'll produce an album, you know, let's yeah, get yeah. Ringo in. And I think that would have distracted Yoko and made her, you know, made her happy. More, yeah, um, made her more supportive of the Beatles as well. Right, exactly. Because just during this time that, you know, a couple of days later, she says to, uh, she gets interviewed and says that she's, you know, very interested in her work and John's work, but not, not necessarily the Beatles. Then that's okay. I mean, she's, she's sitting there, but like after that, you know, they have that very lovely at the end um, when Isn't a Pity is playing in the background. You see that John, Ringo, and Paul have this little hug. And then Yoko comes up in that. And that was one time when I felt claustrophobic about Yoko. I was just yeah, like, yeah. give them some space, Yoko. Like, yeah. she's so insecure about John. It's just like, give them some space. Mm. Paul and John are not going to run off if they have a hug, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. I think that's not, yeah, it's wrong of her to insert herself into that moment, you know? when it's this kind of emotional moment between the three of them who have sort of like just lost, you know, like temporarily lost a brother or whatever, you know. It's like, yeah, yeah. Just let the family be a family for a minute, you know. It's intense. You have to be quite insecure to feel like I can't be apart from this person. You know, I do buy into the fact that Yoko and John took acid together. They, you know, had this meeting of minds, felt like they reflected each other, you know, completed each other. I do believe that exists, but then they take it way further and can't be apart. And so I thought about what that would take. And I just think it reflects a lot of vulnerability, the need for protection, you know, a little bit of look at me, look at how how desirable I am. And, and they're doing drugs together, of, of course, but fundamentally, I think it's more, um, you know, to me, it felt like somebody who's very vulnerable and need support and protection uh, to be more dominant. You know, I think the jean jackets would be like, Jalen was just so in love, but it's really just, you have to be quite insecure. Like it's a very much a security thing. Yeah, also I think for the first time, we've actually got the visual evidence to, to support that. Like uh, you guys, as in 
breakup series. Breakup series yeah. like, um, you guys have always sort of um, had the contention that John needed Yoko there as armor or mm-hmm. something. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that logically makes sense when you kind of join the dots of everything, right? Yeah. Um, and, and and we've spoken before about you know what how come Paul is okay? Everyone I think agrees that Paul and Linda are as in love and as yeah um, yeah yeah meshed or whatever as John of and course. Yoko are. Yeah. So how come if Paul can be okay with Linda and John, mm-hmm. why not the other way around? And we've we've obviously um, tried to draw that thread through mm-hmm. and say that it means that something is wrong for John, something is missing yeah. for John. Yeah. But I think also now the more I watch Get Back, the more visually obvious it is to me how broken John is at this point. Really? Well, yeah. It's not obvious all of the time because, for, you know, we know that a lot of the film John is, um, you know, uh joking around and very happy and and that's all true but as I've said to you before I think when when the film catches him in moments that he's not um either super engaged in what's happening or not sort of like the center of attention or whatever yeah yeah he does have a very lost look on his face and he seems very wistful at times and very um, pensive. Um, and there he has those little moments where he says, you know, like the, that, that, that bit where he talks about the wound or where, you know, yeah. Michael Lindsay Hogg yeah, 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 yeah. wound and he, and he not only does he agree and, and sort of validate that idea that there's a wound that he is hoping uh, would Defense, be, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but also, it's in his eyes, you know. Like you can see, you can sort of see a pain and a sadness there, um, which I think is visible at other times as well. You know, there's also, I, I, can't, I think this is not in Get Back, but there's definitely also a time in those sessions where John makes a comment like. Uh, we have to readjust to each other or something. Do you know oh, really? you know the one that I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, uh, I, I don't remember that. But but that's fascinating because that's kind of part of the challenge. And, you know, Peter Pafidis, when I was talking to him, he called John's look um, beseeching. He said he's often looking mm, at Paul. And, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I think a jean jacket might have said, like, he feels sad because he's walking away. But I really don't think it's that. I think that there seems to be this unspoken impasse between in John and Paul. And, and this comment that you said that he makes is kind of like things have changed. And I think neither of them know how to fix it. And, you know, Paul said that it was hard for John to be coming to the studio and seeing him when he had Yoko there because it was like he was another girlfriend. And I, you know, I, I don't think there's anything for sexual to, to be read into that, mm. but you know, yeah. he's, these are kind of metaphors for John. And it's not that John fell in out of love with Paul because if he had, it wouldn't be hard for him to see. Exactly. Paul. Exactly. That's right. It's this idea of like, we can't work 
and I'm somebody who needs everything. And yet I still, I'm still kind of creatively in love with you. And I don't know what to do about this situation. Sometimes I wish that John had been more emotionally flexible or <laughs> there had been like a, you know, a therapist there to say that John, not everything has to be in you one person. Price. And, you know, you can tell you, you can tell Yoko, she doesn't need to be there anymore. You're strong. Paul's giving you attention, you know, like Paul is now fully, fully attentive to you. You need to get rid of Yoko there because that's not respectful to Paul, like that you're making your partner uncomfortable and weird. And Yoko, John is not going to run off with Paul. So you can calm down because he will still be with you and he'll still do your projects. You know, I just feel like, you know, there's kind of Yoko staking her place. John feels like he needs armor and Paul's trying to work with it. I, it it's a hard position for Paul. Yeah, it's insurmountable for Paul because it's uh, like it's two forces working working um, towards that situation. It's John's insecurity reinforced by Yoko's insecurity. That's right. You want to call it, you know? So, yeah. so that it's complex because it's not just uh, it's not just John. It's not just John having to work through his issues. It's John having to work through his issues when his issues are also being. Uh, reinforced and distorted in some yes. way by Yoko's issues, right? Yes. Yeah. What I hate about this situation is it makes Paul complicit in John and Yoko's issues. You know, like saying that Paul was jealous or sad. Paul was actually just reacting to a change in his professional life that, by the way, meant the world to him. So, of course, he's upset. Totally. And, of course, he's reacting to that as are Ringo and George, but it's most meaningful for Paul because the thing that it's, well, it's impacting everything, but most significantly it, uh, it impacts the John and Paul partnership because they can't write from scratch together anymore. Like Paul's not the one with the issues, John leaving and Yoko being there. It's well, it's all about them. And I think the fact that Paul isn't more reactive reflects his great love and understanding of what John needs, you know, it's not. It's not. It's kind of a, a neediness uh, triangle that Paul gets uh, swept up into. Yeah, totally. Yes. So, uh, really to needed say, a therapist, like a, yes, a did. third part, fourth party, you know, just to, to yeah. go. Well, okay, this is what's happening, guys. You know, and and sort of diagnose the whole situation because there's no way that John or any of them could have recognized. All the, like that complex web of psychological dynamic. Yeah, I don't think so. Dynamic, like that, that's the thing is that when we talk about all this stuff, it sounds like they're thinking all these things through logically. And I don't think they're not conscious of any of this. It's no. just John is like, I think that at one point he would give into Paul too easily and started feeling badly about himself. Even though Paul was probably somewhat complimentary and supportive, John needs a lot. Like John is somebody who separated from Yoko and he still needed her to call 20 times a day. And she still needed to call him 20 times a day. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, like it's and, excessive. And and on the flip side, Paul was somebody who wasn't very good at <laughs> that's right. At, at telling other people like at sort of building He's excessively up, up bad. with his words, you know. Yes, like yes. he he probably he definitely well, I mean I've heard many times people say that you never got a compliment from Paul. Like, you, you, not never, but, you know, it was rare yep. to get uh, direct verbal 
sort of uh, validation from Paul because he just wasn't expressive in that way. And well, he's I, terrible. Uh, yeah, he's not good at it. No, he's terrible at it. He's awkward at it, and um, and that would that would have been always the case. And you yeah. can imagine <laughs> that. I mean, don't forget that's part of his personality anyway. Plus, we're talking about a Northern English bloke yeah. in the in the sixties. You know, like there's no way he and John as teenagers growing into adults would have been patting each other on the back and saying, (laughs) you're you're amazing. You know, like, it's not how they, Exactly. No, you're better. You're the best. No, you're the best. (laughs) And that's, and and that may be what, exactly what John needed. You know, not in that way, but I'm sure that Paul failed to give John at times when John needed it, at times when John was feeling, um, you know, whatever, insecure, uh, I'm sure that Paul did not meet John's needs emotionally at that point. He, he, he wouldn't have even thought to, you know. Well, okay. Remember in the, in the interview John gives a few days after to um, Miles, he talks about when he was going through murder, Paul was feeling full of confidence. There's no recollection of Paul stopping by and helping build him up. It's Derek and all these other people. So there's the professional side, but then in many years from now, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a comment by Paul who said that, I think it was in during magical mystery tour where he said that John looked down and he should have talked to him. Like there's something in there where he regrets. So I think it's also, obviously it's also on the personal side too. It's like Paul yeah. never just slowed down and just said, Hey, what's up? You yeah. know? Well, like, you know, and I think Paul has expressed something like that a number of times since John's death that I, I should have, I could have been more, you know, um, yeah. demonstrative. He's recognized. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, it's very easy to imagine when you think about Paul and you think about his personality in the 60s his, and his his swagger and his confidence and John's personality as well and John's confidence and mm-hmm. the charisma and the magnitude that we know that John had, you can imagine Paul just not even giving it a second thought that John would need it. Um it's hard though, because it's like Paul seems to know that John is up and down and needs support. And at the same time, there's he's got this vision of John being a god, just yeah. like John has a vision of Paul, of being, Paul a god. being a god. That's so, right. you know, that they I think they are each other's biggest fans. And so they see each other as so amazing. So they, maybe that mixes them up, you know? But also, I think from a sort of empathic point of view, like Paul, I don't think Paul suffered from the same insecurity right. as John did. I think Paul So he always, didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. He he didn't understand. He couldn't he wouldn't have thought for it to be like because of the way he saw John yeah. and the way he saw himself. Himself in his own experience. Yes. Exactly. He just wouldn't have thought that I don't think. Like he might have recognized John's mood swings or his or his I think his, that's a great great you know, point thank yeah, he, you that's just, a great I point I don't think he would have framed it in a way of John needs to be built up here because he is feeling insecure about his own ability and about his own um identity or whatever he would have just seen it as oh John is up and down you know that's yeah, part yeah, of who yeah, he yeah. is yeah you know what I mean no I think that's an amazing point Paul's kind of a, a golden child in some ways in that you know like his mother died so obviously that was tragic for him so I'm not saying that he had a 
perfect existence or anything, but he's good looking. He's likable. You know, the music comes easily to him, you know, not to say he didn't have his ups and downs, but just, I think you're right. Like he wasn't stuck in a marriage that he wasn't happy and, you know, he wasn't going through some of the same issues. So he hadn't gone through that experience. So didn't really know in terms of, like you said, truly empathizing, like maybe he sympathized, but he didn't. Yeah. He didn't understand. And, and, you know, I think like as much as on the one hand, I think it's been overplayed um, that, you know, John's childhood was super traumatic and Paul's was lovely. Like that's. Yeah, it wasn't. I don't agree with that. But to be fair, probably John had a couple more like um, uh, setbacks throughout his childhood than Paul did. And. and I think that Paul uh, didn't grow up, from what I can gather, with the same inner unrest that that John did in terms of just his general grappling with his identity and his and the meaning of everything. I mean, I don't know if I, if I'm partly just being swayed by the literature and by the way it's been. Um, no, 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 painted, no, no. But- you know, I no. think Paul generally was like a, a, you know, a contented, like obviously he had terrible things, you know, in his life. Losing his mother would have been unbelievably traumatic for him. I'm not not minimizing that in any way, but I just think as far as like inner psychological uh, understanding of the world and accepting yeah, himself yeah. and all that, I just feel like John always had this edge of like, you know, not knowing who he was and what his place in the world was. And I think Paul was a little bit more grounded all the way through than that. That's the impression that I get. Well, I, you know, I used to get annoyed by this, you know, that, that because Paul's mother died when Paul was 14, that's pretty young and it's extremely disruptive and tragic. So I, I always felt like not enough attention has been given to that. But on the other hand, there was nothing in Paul's life that suggested he was the reason for that. Like Paul, you know, I think what's not done is like some of Paul's behaviors are a result of his mom, you know, him being protective and being a control freak and not letting people in deeply. Those are all things that probably are from his mother's death, but he had no message that he was bad, that he was to blame for it. Whereas John, you know, his parents leaving when he's young, I think sent a message that, they didn't love me enough. I wasn't enough yeah. well, for them to stay. A lot of, and that's a lot huge of the, though. Yeah, totally. A, a lot of the tragedy for John that happened throughout John's childhood, I think, not not his mother's death because that was, that was a freak accident, but a lot of the other stuff was um, kind of uh, – neglect in a way you know it was it was to yeah. do with abandonment yeah. irresponsible parenting and that kind of yeah, thing yeah. whereas i guess paul ostensibly had a more sort of generically like loving family yeah. or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. and and obviously tragedy struck but but in a different way you know and i think um paul i, I reckon paul as you say, like there are lots of issues, I'm sure, that resulted from Paul's mother's death. But I think he, especially earlier in life, was a lot less conscious of um, how his childhood affected 
him as a person, yeah, as an adult, you know, yeah. like how the impact that some of that had on him. I think he was less conscious of that than John was That's of right, how yeah. his childhood had an impact on him, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with you that John was very aware in, in the 60s, whereas Paul knew that was a tragedy in his life, but I'm not. Although he did say that one result was that he put a wall around himself. But, but, but I when think did you like, say that, though? I don't. Like, like it's more of a retrospective thing with Paul. Sure. He understands, he sees it now, Yeah. but not necessarily at the time, you know. But what happened to him didn't happen in those formative years either, which is really important. Yes, and, exactly. But, you know, the other day, weirdly, I saw um, a friend of mine who's a, a playwright came by and was just reading her newest play to me, actually. She just wanted some feedback. And um, it was about a girl whose father walks away. Like one day he just leaves in the middle of the night and he never comes back. Mm-hmm. And... It was so sad because this play goes on to talk about her life. It was like an ongoing wound that she felt like somebody had left her and could leave her. And it made me empathetic for, I mean, I've always been for John, but just the, the fact that it's just, it's an event that people make meaning of it. Unfortunately, kids make meaning that's not about them, but they feel like it's about them, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so John's always grappling with that, you know? Mm. I talked about... In the very, of this series, at the very beginning, I I did a recap and I talked about John's quote from Janov saying that the lack of love went into his eyes and his mind. And it's kind of like, it's, he's saying that no matter how much I get, I feel that way. And it's, it's unfortunate for John, you know? I wanted to talk about the roof, um, the rooftop, because we didn't talk about that. Like, you know, we talked about the fact that it was actually a good move to do that. But just in terms of the chemistry between the four of them, uh, you know, it's just like for me, I looked at it again and it was just incredible as a band what chemistry they had and you know how much even george who didn't want to go up there is so good and so defiant you know oh, to yeah. try and turn him off but then yeah. also this chemistry between john and paul is insane you know they're just back on and i think they just you know i think it's kind of intoxicating for the two of them that once they start you know, it's almost mesmerizing to to look at the two. And the I think the two of them make each other look so good. You know, like there's yeah. something about the two of them being together that is just a magic that reflects incredibly well on both of them. You know? Yeah. So I've, it's interesting. I've watched it again since we last spoke. Yeah. And, um, so firstly, I think something we said in another conversation is that we thought Jackson cut some looks between Paul and John, yep. which I'm not sure. I noticed a lot more looks between them than I had the first time. I yeah. was looking for them. There's more of them because he's got all those split screen bits, right? And so sometimes yeah. Yeah. if you really want to look out for John and Paul's eye contact, you it's not always... So I guess this is also, you know, um, <laughs> validating the fact that Jackson has kind of uh, like, if not cut them, um, 
move the emphasis away from them. Yeah. So I, don't, I really don't think that's intentional, but whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of really intense moments between the two of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also agree they complement each other in an amazing way that I think in some ways is a lot more um, uh, demonstrated in this performance than any of the older uh, performances from the touring years. Um, but just because, you know, in, in those ones, in the old concerts and stuff, it's all, it all feels so choreographed yes, and yes, so yes. rehearsed yes. and done. So, like, you, you don't, it doesn't feel that authentic. Whereas in this, I love how you just get this thing where, like, John has his, like, wide-legged stance and he's just, like, grounded at the microphone and, and he's sort of just got this, like, super grounded energy about him. And then Paul is like has got like Loose. an equally intense energy but it's much it's very different manifests it's very, very sexy actually it's yeah yes. he's very he's very his body is very um dynamic Fluid. he yeah, moves yeah. a lot his head moves a lot he's got he's, there's a lot of facial expression and he's a lot more um jo- like you know John's a lot more sort of like still and grounded where Paul's yes. a lot more sort yes. of moving up and down and um that's a really interesting visual thing but then also obviously you know they sound amazing together they when they harmonize there's there's you know that's always been a magic that they've had together um yeah. but you know just watching them do it and seeing their eye contact and um and not just their eye contact with each other but also just you can see how much each of them is enjoying themselves i did notice that too like john as we talked about just is grounded as a person and that's kind of how he stands yeah you know like he's just like determined whereas paul is a lot looser he's kind of like paul always dance more but he's is a sexier dance right now like he's got more swagger he's a lot more hip movement i I can tell you as a woman it's pretty sexy the way he moves yeah um uh maybe even for a guy but yeah and he sort of swings his head around a lot but it is the contrast of the two plays off so so well and the fact that they're looking at each other all the time one of the things that i did notice was that paul is kind of watching i think paul's got an eye on john just to make sure like I, I was watching, um, I've got a feeling and John jumps in and does his bit and Paul's watching him really closely. I think it's kind well, of like, you see Paul kind of willing him to do it, you know? And he looks, he looks relieved when John is, you know, performing like nobody believes more in John than Paul, but I think he's also watching John. Yeah. I think that Paul is the kind of musician who is always watching and listening very closely to like he he um he's very he's a very supportive yes musician yes and um he he would be doing things like watching John's lips um to see exactly how he's going to sing and like to copy his exact phrasing when they're harmonizing together yeah um he is a very empathic musician, I think. You know, he loves to uh, – and it's kind of a quality of, like, a musical director as well, like where you are really watching and, like, someone who is who is um, in tune with uh, everyone else's mm, mm. Uh, whims and, and mm-hmm. sort of musical, like uh, – 
you know, um, idiosyncrasies or whatever. And I, I do feel that Paul is very much that kind of musician, whereas John is more of a just like stand and deliver. Um, he sort of does it his way and he's less a less flexible musician, you know, so he kind of just has his way that he does things. And I think mm-hmm. in some ways that makes him like a slightly less sensitive musician, you know, than than Paul is, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, that actually brings me to a question. Yeah, like it looked, Paul was interesting because he looked so energized. Oh, my God, he looked like he was a man set free out there, you know? Yeah, totally. But, uh, you know, so when I, I saw Paul watching John, and it could be he loves watching John perform, you know, he could be that he was watching to make sure that he delivered, you know, I think there was a slight like, okay, is John going to bring it? And because he does look a bit relieved a couple of times, I thought, you know. And- that is part of the same thing as well. Like if Paul is kind of like the leader of the band, yep. so to speak, he's, you know, he's going to what like whoever it is that's doing their bit, you know, he's watching them to make sure that they do their bit, you know. Like, it's again, it's very much a leadership instinct, I think, yes. to do that, you know. Right. But one of the things I was thinking was like, I think that Paul loves it when John is great and performs incredibly well. Like, I think that he loves to look at John being like that. And I was wondering, like, do you think that John is the same? Like when Paul's performing, and just let me explain this, because I don't think it's not like, um, I think in the traditional story, it would be like, well, Paul just hero worships John or yeah, just yeah, loves yeah. to watch John. And John, no, I, like, I, I suspect at this time, it's maybe that John assumes Paul's fine. Yes, exactly what I was going to say. I think if anything, I would, I, firstly, to answer your question, no, I don't think it's recipro- reciprocal in the same way. And I think that is a, an, it's more of a uh, question of insecurity on, on not not insecurity necessarily, but uh, John trusts Paul one hundred percent. There's never a question. It would never even enter John's mind to wonder whether Paul's gonna, you know, do his bit and play, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's much more of a Paul quality than a John quality to be concerned or worried about what others are going to do. <laughs> right, right, you know? yeah. Um, and uh, I also think that, again, it's just they're slightly different musicians in that way. I think John is much more just a, a little bit more self-involved as a musician. And I don't mean that as a as a, a slight or anything. I just think yeah. that he is just more focused on what he's doing and less aware of what other people are doing. I agree. It's a little bit of a competitiveness thing where I do feel like sometimes Paul just watches John as, as really happy that John is just doing incredibly well. Like he sounded amazing up there, you know? Yeah. I just think he loves to be center stage to have Paul right there with him. I think that's his preferred scenario. You know, like he's in the spotlight and Paul is fully engaged in him. Versus I think Paul loves it when he's center stage and he loves watching John perform incredibly well. And, And by the way, I don't think it's that John doesn't love Paul as a musician. I mean, Paul says that in 71, I think. That uh, you know, John sat there in the booth and watched him and dug it. Yeah, totally. But again, I think it's like good for the band if John is on fire. Um, yeah. Whereas like Paul is kind of always on fire. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> as in like I don't I don't mean to sound I don't mean that to sound like just like a Paul kind of worship statement. Like it's just true that like Paul is a much more accomplished 
musician right. than John in in a sort of proficiency and like technical yeah. sense. Um, even just a singer, he's just a more accomplished singer, you know, like people might prefer John's voice and that's yeah. completely fine. Yeah. But Paul is technically a better singer than John. Anyone who tries to argue that statement is kidding themselves. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's not saying that he's, a, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't like John better as a vocalist. And that is, I yes. love John as a singer and yeah, I got a love beautiful- them equally as singers me too i love them equally as singers as well just for the record (laughs) yeah but technically there is no question that paul has a bigger range has more control is more consistent can has more versatility like you know it's, it's no question right so and the same goes for his bass playing you know he's a extremely proficient and um you know just highlight he's, he's a great bass player and John's a great guitarist in his own way but it's not the same yeah. level we're talking about you know yeah so I, I just don't think there's that same um yeah I think John just does what he does and he does it well and 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 he's less concerned or aware of other things that are happening around him yeah I mean in an alternate universe where Paul is not doing well emotionally and John is strong. I I can imagine John in that scenario, again, it being different, but him maybe having it more of an eye on Paul to be like, yeah, well, I know? think maybe like interpersonally speaking, then yes, that that's yes. sort of, you know, and, and maybe that would come through in other ways, not necessarily on stage, but maybe in the studio or in the rehearsal or, whatever yeah. you know so i just think when they're on stage and they're sort of their musical identities are sort of taking over mm-hmm. um i think it's just more natural for paul to be a more empathic and like sensitive musician mm-hmm. than john hmm. mm-hmm. by the way just touching on what you said about george earlier on the roof um george is like his his playing on the roof is incredible like his solo in One After 909 is a killer. Like that that is one of his best guitar solos, I reckon. Um, and it's live, you know, like for all the stories we hear about yep. George doing a million takes of his solos and not being able to get them right and yada, yada. Like he yeah. smashes that one. Um, yeah, on the he got out of his head. His yeah. Yeah, exactly. And not just that one, like his playing on Digger Pony is unreal. Like it's really not just the solo is great, but all of his little lead lines and stuff. Like it actually, it took me a long time to realize that the recording, like the take on Let It on the Let It Be album of Digger Pony is and One After Nine and Nine are both the rooftop performances. That's incredible. Yeah, it's 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 actually nuts. Like it's fucking bonkers <laughs> that that how good that they that are. Is. Yeah, yeah, like and the fact that those guitar parts. I mean, everything's good. The singing's great. The band sounds great. But George's guitar parts on Digger Pony, which I've always considered to be like super cool, sophisticated, clever, beautiful little yep. touches. Yeah, they're all live. They're just he did them, you know, and then he did them slightly differently every time, you know. So he's really on fire on the roof. It's got it's got to be said, you know. 
Yeah, he looks great too. Actually, like he's yeah. um he should have sung he should have sung a song. You know, to I be, wish he did. Yeah, I wish he yeah. did as well. But but also yeah. maybe it's good that he didn't. You know, like considering how reluctant he was to do it. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, like maybe it was best for him to not have the pressure of singing a song and to just be the guitarist, just be the lead guitarist yep. in the corner. Yep, that's um, a great point. Not, yeah. And I also I also th- think that let Paul and John really shine. Like they had their own thing going on for that performance. You really see the John and Paul magic and you can see they're really connecting. And that allowed them to not break any of that sort of chemistry. I mean, you know. Like I said, when I looked at it, I was just like, they they never looked as good performing as when they did together, in my opinion, because obviously they adore each other playing so much, like they love each other. It's like kind of they're just, they're in their own little world, you know? Mm. Must must have felt great. I, yeah. It's funny because I don't often, because I've spent so much time on the breakup now, I don't tend to get that sad about it because uh i don't think they truly ever broke up i think all of their relationships continued but um but it did make me sad when it was like the last time they played live because it was like why you know yeah. it's, it's too bad and they're just they're just so damn good as a yeah. band like you know it, it's funny because um People still consider Let It Be to be one of their worst albums, right? Which, you know, whatever. We we don't have to have a debate about that because sure. who cares? Yeah. Um, but, Personal but, choice, but it's yeah. Just, uh, it, yeah, exactly. But but I, I just find it amazing to think despite everything, you know, like um, all the overdubs on Abbey Road and, and White Album and stuff and like just you've got this this album in the middle of it all let it be where you've got these live performances and they they're amazing like they sound so incredibly good um and it's just cuz you know they were a great band like we forget because of all the stuff that happened post 66 yeah with with you know in the studio yes with, that's right yeah we forget that they were an amazing band who could play you know uh, like together and create a magical sound, uh, even just the singing, you know, like in those fleeting moments on the roof where we do get all three of them singing together, there's not a lot of it, but we've got it in Don't Let Me Down. We've got it a little bit like moments, you know, I've got a feeling, right? Yeah. Fuck, like that vocal blend. There's nothing like it. And people, I feel like people who don't do this, like as in, make music uh, on a regular basis i don't know if they realize how hard it is and how rare it is to hear live three-part harmony on top of a loud band that sounds that fucking good that's that in tune and accurate they're amazing that well blended together um and perfectly executed that's not a normal thing trust me right. like any anything like that that you hear in music nowadays is record it's it's overdubbed it's isolated vocals it's probably cut up different takes that and auto-tuned and like you know the amount of studio trickery that goes into enhancing things that sound like that now i'm sorry but these guys did that live and they did it so fucking perfectly it's kind of infuriating 
but also just or it's it's just yeah, I can't yeah. They're magic. believe it. Yeah, yeah, I hear it. You know? Yeah, I mean that's that's what. Remember uh, when we were talking before? I said I love the uh, New Orleans. Like that to me was just a bit of a reminder of how long they've been together, how long they've been good together. You know, the Mac the Mac show, Mac show. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they they kind of got into that, and it was like, damn, they've been doing this for a long time together. And I think that's what I found touching about like talking about the band or Apple or like they have their whole history and they're so even though they've got these other things going on, there was so much there. Um, and again, it's uh, it's un. Fortunate because I don't, even though they're they've got issues and they're talking about a divorce one minute and then talking about going on the road the next minute, <laughs> it didn't have to go the way that it went. It you know, no, and it's very sad. It is very sad when you think about it that way. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, obviously, Ringo was uh, amazing. And just a huge shout out to Ringo for wearing that red jacket because it looked cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like a little, <laughs> right jacket. you know, just just that color, that pop is super iconic. Like, well, you know? the, the way they all dressed on the roof is is pretty great. Like, I don't know how planned and thought out it was, but like, firstly, the, th the four jackets, like the Ringo's shiny red jacket. Yeah. Uh, George's, uh, what is it like? His, his massive furry, fur, yes. yeah, thing with the green pants as well. Like yes, that, yes, yes, yes. The, the pop of color too. Then, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you've got John in his like like brown alpaca thing, exactly. And then fur Paul coat. in the black suit. Like, so it's such a great um, visual just mix of yes. colors and styles and textures and personalities. Yeah, 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 and then all, all of them like sort of match their hair at the top, like you know, like the I, I don't know, just that it's just a great visually it looks great, and it's not perfect. Like that's the thing no, is, this is like thing. this is they're all stylish, and and it's amazing to me they're all gorgeous and stylish, and they're all kind of still greasy and kind of imperfect, yeah. but like it just it looks so good together. I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's cool to just watch how, them performing in their own gear, you know. Yeah. And how cool was it that Paul sent Ringo uh, that postcard the day, the next day? Oh, that's, that's great. That's, I love that. And I've heard annoyingly, like, cynical commentary about it. And just Why? Like, like what? What could they possibly uh, say about Paul sending uh, Ringo a postcard saying you're the greatest drummer in the world? Uh, I don't know. because uh, uh, Maybe not cynical. That's the wrong word. But people saying, like, oh, it's because, you know, Ringo's the only one who was you know solid with him like you know George left and John was unreliable you know and then there were two all that bullshit mm -hmm. right um and Ringo stood by you know stood by him and it's just like yeah so everyone being John and George yeah okay. yeah yeah and like how about just Paul is a really lovely beautiful guy who just realized in a moment that Ringo probably doesn't get the credit that he deserves in this band. Right, that's right, know? that's right, and, and absolutely loves playing with him. Drummer, exactly, and he's solid as a rock. And throughout the whole film, we get such a great sense of how reliable and dependable Ringo is. Yeah. not just to play the right thing, but to play it 
exactly the right way. He's so musical. He's so sensitive. He's so open-minded as a drummer. Um, so intelligent so too, actually. Exactly. And I think Paul just had a moment of real appreciation and love for that. And yeah. You know, sent him a beautiful little postcard. That's great. I love that. Oh, I think that that's so sweet. I I personally take it that way too. I don't really know why you take it any other way. That it, that he just stopped and thought that was amazing. Ringo was amazing. Ringo doesn't get enough, you know, a, applause and appreciation. But anyways, it's unfortunate too because John was all in to perform. Paul's obviously dying to perform, like go on the road or do something. I wonder if George would have been into it at that point after, because he seems supercharged after yeah. that performance. It sure does. Yeah. It was apparently like in an interview, John said, well, it's Ringo that we need to convince, which is weird because Ringo loves performing too. Now, like if only if they would have done a little bit of touring, that probably would have been good for them too. You know, don't mm, you think? I think so. Who knows what would have happened if they'd had a chance to, you know, explore that a little bit deeper. Yeah, yeah. Get some more songs up. Yeah. But, of course, they couldn't because fairly soon they were um, faced with a lot of business issues that unfortunately took Zap to a lot of, you know, the spark between them at that time. And so I just wanted to talk for a minute about Klein. Yeah. It's it, It's so sad. When, you know, you see John come back and he's so hyped up by Klein. And you know how I've said that um, to me, I, I see this conflict or tension with John where he's really, really loves Paul and really is connecting with him. And at the same time, I see a bit of a, a little bit of an underlying anger or protectiveness just little things that he says, like, you know, how we were saying, well, this is all of our idea now, Paul, you know, or well, mm. Paul was talking about like, get back. And he's like, well, it's the first song that we were all interested in. And John goes, well, I, I like dig a pony. Yeah, and I yeah, like, yeah. you know, or, yeah. you know, when That's, jo- I, I, that moment is the one that got me that was like, Ooh, there's a bit of a bit of a backhander from John there. The thing is, this is the first song we really sort of got into that we dig. Right. No, exactly. I noticed that too. And when uh, George was like, oh, well, I like every little thing, you know, when he's talking about doing an old song and John's like, well, I'd like to do help. You know, like John's not getting the pickup on his songs that he wants, you know. Um, And I don't think that George or Paul were especially sensitive to it, actually. Like once John said that, I think he was aware. But like when when George was saying that, weirdly, every little thing just seemed to be on his mind, you know. Um, and, And I don't think that they heard how much John wanted to redo help, you know, which which would have been cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't I don't know how serious that was or whether he was just Well, he complains to... about no, he complains about it throughout the 70s. Like No, he, but he complains about a lot of things. He complains <laughs> about strawberry fields as well. <laughs> I was sitting there going, "Let's redo strawberry fields, guys." And the thing is, I love help. You know, a, a slow version might have been beautiful, but I love help the way it is. And strawberry have fields. You, have you ever heard um you, do you know who John Farnham is? Yeah. So obviously, you know, he's huge in Australia. He's like our golden child. Yeah. Um, but uh, he he actually did a cover of Help Slow, um, mm-hmm. like a like a real sort of power ballad. 
It's um, and is it good? It's awful. I can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> Completely kills Anyway, go on. Sorry, I'd so yes, so you know, but you get little moments there, and that's what I felt like because I'm super sensitive to this as well. You know, hearing a little bit of John's ego anger issues like popping up occasionally. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just think that for, for me, looking at this, reading the scene is the knowledge that he signs with Klein immediately. And we uh, know yeah. that Klein played to him. We know what Klein said, because John told us, you know, you're the leader, you'd wrote mm-hmm. all these songs, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that he, he also said it's the one that Yoko liked and he promised Yoko a show. And I just think that it's important to know that that's kind of under the surface with John. The fact that he goes in and signs like that suggests that that was a need that he had for a for a daddy figure. I, like I'm bothered by the fact that John went in and signed without the group. Like it's one thing to come back enthusiastic, but the fact that he and Yoko signed that night seems like a massive betrayal. But he does want to talk to the group, you know, so he wants to sell it in. But I don't read that, like just to, to be clear, I don't read that as John is now breaking away from the group. I see that as a way, a means of being stronger within yeah, the so group. It's, like, it's a power play. If it's he, a power play. If, yeah. he saw it, if he saw it as breaking out from the group, then he wouldn't have needed the others to, he wouldn't have felt the need to sell it to the others. I mean, he does say, I'm going to sign whatever you, you know, irrespective of what you do. But yeah. he still wants, you know, he's still talking about it and wanting to, you know. Um, oh, my God. He uh, fights tooth and nail to get Paul to sign, all four of them to sign, nonstop until he can't do it and declares a divorce. 1971, he's still talking about the fact that Klein would love it if Paul would come back, and so would he. So it's yeah. like he's still trying to get Paul back. Um by that point but it's yeah. i just think it it's that is an important signaler like canary in the cold cold mind kind of thing of the emotional issues that are brewing under the surface with yeah John. no i think you've done a good job of threading it together there with those little moments of john uh demonstrating a bit of insecurity and sort of sense of feeling a little bit yeah unseen and and feeling yeah. like he's his songs are not um, getting, you know, the recognition they deserve or whatever. Yeah. And um, and then, yeah, being so, so charmed by Klein and then, you know, there's the scene where Glyn is like saying. Oh, my God. So yes. weird. And John's like, yeah, but he's great. And Glyn's yeah. like, yeah, but he's really weird. And, and he's really not, John. Yeah, but he's great you know like and, John's and, just like not hearing him I know yeah. and Glenn was tenacious like he had done, yeah. Glenn was amazing because I'm sure he was kind of like would you hear me he's not yeah, great yeah, yeah. You know, he's yeah. weird. but because but Glenn's like such a nice dude and also because it's John Lennon yeah he's he, he just like sort of finds he's like yeah 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 but he sort of finds a way to to push the point without like just totally uh shutting John down he's sort of trying to like yeah you know, meet his excitement, but also, you know, he gives those examples of how he changes the subject in the middle of a sentence if he doesn't like what you're saying. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, but he's great, <laughs> John said. I mean, I know, but that, see, I find that instructive of how buoyed John is, like how yeah, yeah. hyped up 
He won't John hear. is. Yeah. Like for two years. So to me, that reflects how much John needed to have that kind of person, like that daddy figure in his life. Like I, he doesn't want Paul to be that kind of a figure in, you know, that it's not that Paul really wants to be that kind of figure either, but yeah, John yeah. wants to have his guy, you know, backing him. And again, he could have left the Beatles that moment, but he stays for the next six months fighting tooth and nail to get Klein in and continues after he asked for the divorce for the next six months after that, he drops it. Well, the only real problem between us is the Eastman versus Klein. So if Paul were to go with Klein, you know, like it, it becomes absolutely like the, the conflict that they can't get over. Yeah. But it just made me think hearing how excited, I mean, obviously I've heard that many times that, that little. It's bit. devastating, isn't it? Like just to see it, um, to see it unfolding, you know, when we know what we know. Yeah. It's a really sad moment for me. Yeah, and I think he thinks that it will help the Beatles. Like, I really and truly do believe that John thinks that this guy's amazing and he's going to help us. And, like, you know, I do understand that they're losing money like crazy. They're all scared financially, which is awful. That by the end of the Beatles, they're all afraid that they've got no money. Like, how horrible. And that, you know, they're surrounded by sharks. And so they're like, well, we'll get the biggest shark that'll defend us, yeah. you know? Yeah, Ringo says, you know, it would be nice to have a crook on our side for a change. Right, or, right. Like right. Yeah. So but you'll, you can see the allure. I mean, even I posted on Twitter a, a quote from George saying, well, I know he's a crook, but, you know, we figured that Nat Weiss would have found us $5 million, but we thought that Klein would find us $10 million and only take two. And yeah, he yeah. said, we thought we could rein him in, but it's... It's just, I, you know, it's sad because that's to me why I read, you know, Peter Jackson reads only purely sweet things into John's behavior. And to me, there's, there's more under the surface. And did you notice Paul's face when they go and meet Klein? You already see this really negative look. Yeah, Fleet totally. Go through yeah. Paul's face. And the next day when he's like, you know, complaining about, I don't know if, if he's impacted the next day. Right, yeah. That's the day before they go up on the roof. Yeah, when he's when he's uh, in his head and yeah. can't, can't work. Yeah, yeah. I suspect a little bit like when, that's when he's like, well, it's sad to know you're going to be off in the future. I think, I think what he was hoping was that this would bond them all so much and bring all the good feelings back that this would propel them to a better place. And then maybe Klein came in and Paul was just like, that's a problem. Can't you see that? If like you and a group were doing incredibly well and then all of a sudden this guy that you knew was a criminal and you just rebonded with your partner and all of a sudden he's besotted with this other guy. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, you know, when he says that thing about going off in a bag, he, I think it's right when he says, you know, I, I don't even really know what I'm moaning about, you know, and, and, and then the fact that, he's trying to search for what it is that is really bothering him. And the thing that comes out of him is something about John doing this other thing, which shouldn't have really bothered him. and didn't really bother him unless maybe it was like a symbol for him of, I've got this thing with Klein now and John's getting sort of swept away in that. And it, and it sort of brings him back to like this, whatever this impasse is or this sort of disconnect between 
him and John, it sort of reminds him that like, oh yeah, even though we feel really bonded right now because of all this great stuff that's happened in the last couple of weeks, it's like, oh yeah, we're, you're going to be off in a bag next week, you know. And right. where you, you and Yoko, you and Yoko just signed with Klein, great. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and that reminds him, like, we're in this weird place together, and we're, it's not what it, you know. No, I agree. I agree that it's interesting. And then he makes the comment that, like, for who is who is like making another album, or who, for who is this a big deal? And he's like, not me, because I think that that's the point is that Paul wanted it to lead to something yeah. else. Yeah, 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 exactly. He says it. He says it straight out. He afterwards he says, "I suppose that's overboard," but he says, "I want to light a rocket." I think, with it or I think all like I want to do is like uh, I probably, you know, having got it together, I probably just want to go and have fun with it rather than just sort of finish off exactly as we started. And I'd like to sort of do it for the finish. Mm. And we just get out in the open, and change a scene. Or- do and do it somewhere else. Do it on a live show. Do it on a stage. Mm. You know, I like to, to light a rocket and really sort of take off for the end of it. And uh, you know, but that's going a bit like overboard, I suppose. Still, but well, that's me. You know, I always do that. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to go and play live, and you know. Yeah. And then he's like, I guess that's just me. That's, uh, you know, but I always do that. I always go overboard, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. recognizing that's his thing. But, but I wish he would have just been a little tougher, <laughs> honestly, yeah. just, just said it. No, like, instead of being like self-deprecating and being like, oh, that's just me being overboard. It's like Paul usual. McCartney, you are the Beatles at the top of your game. You can say that. You yeah, can say yeah. that. It's still, you know. Yeah, you don't have to filter. Oh, yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's that thing again of him being very self-conscious of being too overbearing and too bossy and too pushy and not wanting to be the leader. So he sort of almost has to uh, follow up things like that with, oh, no, no, that's, that's don't, don't worry about me. You know, it's just right, me right, being. Right, right, right. Well, sad. it's kind of the opposite of like we've been led to believe. I mean, you know, obviously we didn't believe this, but the, the yeah. early take was is that he's such an egomaniac. And I personally kind of think I'd prefer to see the egomaniac being yeah, like, he's, you know. He's the, he's the opposite. He he constantly downplays himself, you know. that that That's the truth. I mean, he you know, he might be an egomaniac in the sense that, He's musically very driven. He knows what he wants. He knows that he's the best in the group musically and therefore he's comfortable and, and in fact, he's compelled to tell people what to do and to tell people how to play. But in terms of his own um, awareness and sort of concept of his place and his, uh, like, level of I don't know like entitlement and authority and stuff like he's the opposite of an egomaniac because he's always second guessing himself you know what I mean like he's yeah and the thing is I don't think that that would have been the case if we would have seen Paul in 66 or 67 yes I agree yeah I I think if we would have seen Paul in Sergeant Pepper he would have been unbridled enthusiasm and so something's happened. I think it was the White Album and Yoko yeah. and that that changed things, you know? Well, we've seen him, we've heard him say later on, when you know, when someone tells you you're overbearing, yeah. you stop and you think, shit, 
fuck, I'm overbearing. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. that's, yeah. you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that's a quote yeah. from him, you know, like, yeah. and that's a, clearly what has happened. I mean, he's obviously referencing, he's probably referencing a few things when he says that, but clearly this is one of them, this period. But Yeah. And I mean, I, again, that's the genius of John having Yoko in the studio is that he, you know, in the breakup series, we called it a loaded gun. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. John, John can be constantly like, well, if you don't, you know, if you go too overboard, I could leave. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And I think Paul kind of calls his bluff with the McCartney album. I don't think he meant to, but I think he ends up doing that. And then, you know, John's forever mad about that. So that's for another conversation. Thank you again, Jonathan. This has been so much fun. We'll have to pick it up in the future. So many, so many great things to talk about. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful and honored to have been on the show. It's been a really fun experience chatting about this. And um, yeah, I hope we can do it again soon. Excellent. Thank you. Awesome. That is the end of part three. Thank you so much for listening. As discussed, the Get Back series will continue throughout the year when I have guests that want to discuss it. I have a couple more episodes that have already been recorded that will be released, but I might also start to release some other episodes that are non-Get Back specific. But don't worry, if you love Get Back, we will continue to discuss it. And if you're enjoying the series, please let us know on social media, send an email, or please consider leaving a five-star review or rating. I love it. I appreciate it. I think anybody who's left one. Also, uh, a very lovely listener suggested repeatedly that I start a Patreon account, so I did. So um, if anybody would like to contribute all money, I can assure you, will go back to the podcast. So if you feel like contributing, that would be greatly appreciated.
Also, that was Jonathan Scobron, and Jonathan has an album that's coming out later on this year. And so I'm going to play one of his songs called You Mean the Sea, and you can check out Jonathan's YouTube page, and I've put a couple of links uh, to his music on the episode page. So please check that out. Some spectacular stuff there. So thanks again. We'll be back very soon with another episode. So please keep an eye out for that. And thanks again. Take care. Until next time. Bye. to go into that territory you redraw the veil as we you and me face our own insanity and the sea waltzes on and on so do Ourselves as we. Want to.